Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Pain and Gain. Fun and games, gentlemen. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my co-host and friend Julio. Julio, we are going back to 2013. It honestly seems like we can't stay away from this year. Uh, We, in previous episodes, covered Secret Life of Walter Mitty, uh, blue is the warmest color. We've had endless, it seems, conversations and uh, diatribes about Inside Lou and Davis, Spring Breakers, amongst others. Uh, what else came out that year that we've talked about a lot in here? Gravity is one that I know has come across as a conversation. Prisoners. It was a it was a loaded year, uh, and of course, American Hustle, which <laughs> well, <laughs> eh, it's a movie we've talked about. I'll tell you that. Not all the conversations have been positive. They have not, but we are going back to 2013 to visit what was my number three movie of the year that year, and that is Pain and Gain. Uh, 2013 is one of the rare years where I actually put, I was going to say pen to paper, but it's more like finger to key and typed in what my top movies of that year were, uh, was, were, is, am. <laughs> and Pain and Gain came in at number three. It is the Michael Bay masterpiece. I mean, that question mark kind of defines its Rotten Tomato score. Dead center, 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Based on the real-life Sun Jim gang of Miami, Florida in the mid-90s, led by Daniel Lugo. The ultimate Florida man. Some juiced-up idiots that thought they were smarter than the average bear and ended up killing a few people and getting sentenced to death row because of it. Now, is this a Hollywood retelling? Yes, is Mark Wahlberg way hotter than the actual Daniel Lugo? Absolutely. <laughs> but that's why you got Michael Bay there. He takes all these parts and puts them together to make just like the nastiest, most delicious sandwich. You know, the type of thing that, you know, um, last call, you're down on the, the street somewhere and there's a diner open or even just one of those places, you know, like those pizza places downtown Austin where you just kind of poke your head in the window and just yell what you want. This would be one of those late night snacks that's just stacked full of calories. I, I don't even cars. know that Pain and Gain qualifies as one of the pizza places that's open on 6th Street. No, this is more <laughs> like the the hot dog cart that has maybe two hot dogs left. And <laughs> you're like, fuck it, it's late and I'm hungry. That's true. Uh, yes, not even an establishment. It's like a standalone cart. You're exactly right. There was the, There's like a bratwurst cart that moves around sometimes, at right. least down when I was at 6th Street last, which probably would have been 2013. So <laughs> whatever the case, pain and gain, 
directed by Michael Bay, screenplay by Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, based on the book Pain and Gain. This is a true story, which looks like it was released that same year. Oh, so this was like like The Godfather. They they wrote the book and the screenplay at the same time? Looks like it. And both of them, uh, excuse me, they were uh, released kind of to coincide with each other. It looks like the source material for this was a series of articles in 1999 that were written for the Miami New Times by Peter Collins. Uh, the film, as we'll get into a little bit here in the first half and probably a little bit more in the second half, is loosely based on the real-life crime that we were just mentioning. As all... Michael Bay movies are just loosely based in some semblance of reality. (laughs) Loosely based on planet Earth. Going to go ahead and just get this out of the way. Would you believe that this is something Michael Bay wanted to make since the year 2000, but he kept it on his back burner? He didn't think he was ready? Well, it was he knew where he was in his career, and if he had just tried to cash in immediately on his, like, this is, again, for those of you who've seen Pain and Gain, using the word artistic, it might be stretching the the definition. <laughs> but this is as artistic a film as you're going to get from Michael Bay. And so I think he knew in 2000, if he cashed in on the goodwill of like The Rock, they, and then he chose to make his art house movie, uh, they weren't going to go for it. So he ended up making a little series of films uh, based off was it Hasbro's Transformers, and that ended up <laughs> floating the bill for Pain and Gain. So there you go. Uh, what a coward. <laughs> should have just, he should have Tarantino did. Tarantino didn't wait until he was halfway through his filmography to throw Jackie Brown there. He was like, third movie. That's it. If you, if you don't like it, tough shit. <laughs> yeah. And fasten your seatbelts because I got Kill Bill coming up. Well, to be fair, it, it was destiny that this all f- fit in the line because Anthony Mackie wasn't around at that point in time. And uh, The Rock was... Jesus, The Rock had only started to scratch the surface of what he would become in the year 2000. There's always a wrestler you can just bamboozle into being in in your movie. If it wasn't The Rock, it would have been... been, Dude, at at the turn of the millennium, those guys were making more money in wrestling than they would have been offered to do movies. Like, the the party was never going to end. I know I've said that before, (laughs) specifically when we did Ready to Rumble. For that time period in wrestling, those guys were making money hand over fist. Uh, but it's hilarious, The Rock's trajectory, because in the year 2000, he basically, his rise to fame, and this isn't even just in wrestling, this is like anywhere in any type of you know entertainment, his rise to prominence was like he was shot out of a cannon and just became this supernova <laughs> of popularity. Because, you know, 98, 99, 2000, he's on the incline, and then he just explodes and then does uh, The Mummy Returns. Was that the one he was in? Okay. To say that he was in that movie is, once again, stretching the definition. Work with it. me here. Work with me here. That Okay. The, that was the one with the awful CGI that he was in that the Scorpion King got a spin off of. features are somewhat in the movie. Well, that was it. And then it was just like, bang. It's a done deal. And then I think he... <laughs> He made movies for another three, four years with the the Rock moniker in there. Do you remember what the last movie he was the Rock in? Is it the the Tooth Fairy? No, it was that movie. Was it called the Game Plan? That Disney movie he was in. Yep. Uh, His because for a while it was, was there. yeah, it was the Rock, and then it became Dwayne the Rock Johnson, 
And then just eventually, you know, by the time we get to pain and gain, he's just Dwayne Johnson all the way. Uh, we stumbled a little bit in between there. I remember him showing up on, he, he filmed some cameo and sent it into the WWE to promote whatever the fuck his movie was at the time. And he referred to himself as DJ. He was like, hey, WWE <laughs> Universe, DJ here. And we were all collectively just like, we're not going to call you that. We'll go with Dwayne. <laughs> we'll go with Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, but DJ ain't going to happen. Don't push it. Be like Michael Bay. No, <laughs> no, when to play your cards. Know your limits. Yeah. <laughs> know your limits, Master Bay. So, Pain and Gain 2013. We're here to cover it all. The Rock, Mark Wahlberg, Michael Bay, Anthony Mackie, Tony Shalhoub, Ed Harris. The list goes on and on. Rebel Wilson. If this is your f- Rebel Wilson. That's right. Uh, a woman named Bar Polly Paley. Not Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> no. Nope. Basically, who she is. <laughs> If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to our little preamble there. Uh, If you're a returning listener, you all know we love you all the same. Give us a moment here while we explain what it is we do to any and all potential new listeners. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's our battle cry. We'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh. Uh, What we'll do then is make a case for maybe why that movie is a little bit overrated. Some of the things the critics swept under the rug, uh, some of the negative aspects that they just, for whatever reason, chose to ignore. We'll bring those to light. Uh, On the other side of the coin, we'll find one of those nasty green splotches, typically about 30% and below, uh, rotten film. And we'll make a case for its positive merit and call out some of the things that were overlooked or just downplayed for no real reason. We'll, We'll shine those movies up real nice and tell you why you should check them out. That comprises the first half of this podcast known as Contrarian's Corner. And Julio, for this one, it's even a little bit more different as we are at an episode ending in a zero, uh, as we have done since the 10th episode of the Contrarians with Natural Born Killers for these every 10 episodes. We like to find what we call a gray area movie. Uh, and that it doesn't get much more gray than this. Dead center 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. So... For the first portion here of Contrarian's Corner, because it does fall in between what we typically do, one of us will be attacking the film and one of us will be defending it. Now, Julio, if I understood correctly from our text messages, I am going to be on the defense while you will be on the offensive. Yes, we like to alternate. And for episode 130, we did uh, the David Cronenberg masterpiece Crash. And in that case, I was defending and you were attacking. Very similar movie. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So this time... I'll be attacking. You'll be defending. Seems fitting. You're the you're the wrestling guy, and I yes. I am not. <laughs> so you you will be taking the rock side and Michael Bay side. I wonder once we get to real talk, Alex. I wonder who between us is the bigger Michael Bay fan. That's a real question. Yeah, that that'll be an interesting discussion. But yeah, all that to say, the first portion of our podcast is known as Contrarian's Corner, where we work our little contrarians magic. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about it, as you mentioned, we'll get to that in the second half of the podcast. That's correct. On the second half of the show, aptly titled Real Talk, then we are all real all the time. We we drop the facade, we stop pretending, we feel one way or another, and we tell you exactly how we really feel. Um, I haven't seen this movie since it came out, and I've heard Alex talk about it a lot in the years since, so I think that he's watched it several times. Oh yeah, I, I have this this idea, Alex, that once we get to real talk, you're just gonna be gushing all over this Michael Bay film. I you I don't know, I don't know if you can tell how I feel, but you'll find out along with all the listeners once we get to real talk. So you saw it when it came out in the theater. 
Yeah, apparently I saw it with Kelly. Uh, yeah, I I watched it in the theater when it came out. I think it was one of those just kind of in bits and pieces throughout slow days at work, just piecing it together. Uh, but you are right. I own this on Blu-ray. I have seen it numerous times. I actually watched it back on July 4th. It's one of my American <laughs> movies that gets... <laughs> my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's the American dream. As dumb and loud and idiotic as it is. Yeah, I mean, what else is there at this point? It has to be loud. And Julio, you actually own this as well. I had forgotten that I own a copy. If you work at a movie theater, every now and then, come the holidays, the the studios will send you a basket with just DVDs. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's how I got Pain and Gain. I couldn't tell you. I mean, I have a bunch of movies that I've acquired that way. And you can actually tell because it's not fancy DVDs. It's just DVDs that have the movie and that's it. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's the case with this copy I have. Once I put it in... I told you, it doesn't even have a trailer. It has a play movie set up and uh, chapters. <laughs> That's all. It, and you know what? That's all, all I need. needed. In a way, this movie is a full meal, whether you like it or not. So I, I don't really need like special features. I don't really need a Michael Bay commentary because it's, it's already there. <laughs> it's almost like I can hear Michael Bay's voiceover throughout the entire movie. So yeah, I watched it on DVD. Uh, not quite as nice as your Blu-ray, I'm sure, but it did the job. Oh, yeah. He's basically like bullying you in this movie, uh, so you don't even need his commentary. If you don't like Michael Bay, he will make sure that you – he he knows you don't like him, and he's just going to shove it in your face the entirety of this film. <laughs> he's going to give you a wedgie. <laughs> exactly. All right, Julio, 50%. Split the critics dead down the middle. What were they saying? So I got some uh, fresh quotes and some rotten quotes all mixed together here. Like the protein shakes that uh, Mark Wahlberg drinks in this movie. <laughs> and I'll start with uh, Richard Propes from the IndependentCritic.com, who says, adds up to more pain than gain. That was a rotten quote. <laughs> and there's quite a few of those, Alex, that like to play on I, the... I would have been disappointed if there wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Um Here's a fresh one from Michael Compton from Bowling Green Daily News, who says, base trademarks are there the loud music, the slow motion spin, the outlandish action moments. But this is also a movie with plenty of dark humor and a cast not afraid to be the butt of the joke. Nothing incorrect about that. I I don't think that anybody is making fun of Ed Harris in this movie. Uh, Well, I think everyone's just inadvertently drawing... (laughs) The movie, yeah, I was about to say, is just inadvertently drawing attention to how handsome he still is. Uh, Another rotten, Frank Ochian from San Francisco Crow's Nest says, registers with all the smoothness of a lumpy protein shake going down a sore throat. Yes, there there is plenty of pain and questionable gain for Bay's revved-up farce of calisthenics cretins. Calisthenics cretins. You got two of the playoff (laughs) pain and gain in there. Honestly, I picked this one for the the image of a lumpy protein shake. That's gross. <laughs> I've never had a protein shake in my life, so I... I don't know if I have either. Uh, and finally, let's close with another fresh. Camilla Long from the Sunday Times UK. The most shocking thing about the new Michael Bay film is not the orange grunting criminals pumping A, iron, B, fists, and C, other people, but the gradual realization that this could be Bay's most intellectual film yet. Well, Camilla, the bar is pretty low. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't know how much I would debate that at the same time. Especially in 2013, it's not like he was... It's not like he were coming off the heels of like The Crucible or something from Michael Bay. <laughs> when did he make The Island? 
That was 2001? I'm going to guess. Let me look it up here. I have his filmography in front of me now. 2005 was the island. 2001 was Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Okay, arguably, I would say the island probably held the title of the most intellectual Michael Bay movie until Pain Again came thrashing along. Yes, so following the island, we went Transformers, Transformers, Revenge of the Fallen, Transformers, (laughs) Dark of the Moon, Pain and Gain, baby. (laughs) So return to his roots. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And fittingly enough, yeah, in 96, he made The Rock. I I wrongly attributed that. I said 98 earlier, the end of the 90s. So Bad Boys was 95, The Rock was 96, and then Armageddon, of course, was in 98. So that fictional reality... uh, that we stated of him trying to make this, this would have been coming off the hills of Armageddon when everyone was still crying about Bruce Willis dying at the end of that movie. Bruce Willis could have played uh, the rock character here. Mm. <laughs> you bulk him up. Yeah, I was about to say, you'd have to put him in like a muscle suit. That first <laughs> shot of Dwayne doing fucking pull-ups, man, you could project a movie on his back. Every time that shot like... It's like that shot in Texas Chainsaw Massacre where the camera goes under the swing that the girl's on to that wide shot of the house. <laughs> Every time I'm just in awe of the rock's back, I'm like, good God, man. <laughs> so the movie starts, I believe the date, it, I wrote it down. If I wrote it down correctly, it's June 17th of 1995. I'm not sure if that's the date those gentlemen were actually apprehended. Uh, but that's where the movie takes us. That's where we kick off. And we kick off with the uh, <laughs> overture that plays numerous times throughout the movie during its most significant sequences i just imagine michael bay like wrote this one 30 second clip of music and you know garage band yep. it's just like this is beautiful <laughs> just looped it uh, yeah exactly uh when i was writing the note about it the overture and i was thinking about how it only happens in the most significant parts of the movie of course that's not anything new to film but this is so like the same 10 seconds over and over it made me think of um the episode of The Office, Andy's play, which mm-hmm. I, to me, the last great episode of The Office, uh, Daryl has this line in it that I don't know why it has stuck with me forever where he uh, – the play starts and Michael's talking to him and he shushes him. He's like, shh, if we don't listen to the overture, we won't recognize the musical themes when they come back later. <laughs> <laughs> but we get our beginning voiceover of Mark Wahlberg. Uh, my name is Daniel Lugo and – I believe in fitness. Even and before you get there, man, I already want to punch Mark Wahlberg oh, in the man. face because he's just—he's oh, no. doing uh what do you call that? Are they pull-ups? No, that's not pull-ups. Crunches. He's suspended. Uh, they're in like intense sit-ups. Yeah, and uh, he's talking about how hot he is in <laughs> the camera. <laughs> Michael Bay—he's just like hit the ground running here. The camera is just doing the the crunches with Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> It's just, I don't know how else to explain it. It's just unnecessary. I I mean, I guess a lot of how you feel about this movie is going to depend on how you feel about its protagonists. And I just cannot stand Mark Wahlberg, Anthony Mackie, and Dwayne Johnson here. They're just, they get on my nerves every moment. They're annoying as all hell (laughs) and i'm going to complain about them through the entirety of contrarian's corner so brace yourself alex because you're gonna give me plenty of opportunities 
if we tried to recount this movie bit by bit, it would we'd be here forever. Uh, we, we're already, you know, we just started the movie and we're 20 minutes into the episode. So <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to keep this plot rather concise, as if you've seen it, you know, it's a fairly simple idea. These jacked up bodybuilders want to be rich and their ways of going about it is kidnapping and eventually leads to inadvertent death and they just don't know what they're doing. So some of the things I want to focus on here are some of the more uh, storytelling aspects and machinations that um, were used to make this. And one of them is the floating narration. Uh, when we meet every character, we get different bits of narration from them. I just imagine, you know, all the whole cast there, Ed Harris and everyone, just and, you know, the the recording studio waiting their turns because Michael Bay wanted them all there together. It's, um, what was that? Wreck-It Ralph. That was a big part of that movie was it was all recorded together, which is kind of uncharacteristic for an animated movie. And in costume, too. They were all in the same room. Yes, (laughs) and that's what I imagine this was. They were all just standing there. Ed Harris was the only one he gave, like, a stool to to sit down. (laughs) So Anthony Mackie is just over it, standing up the entire time. Um (laughs) We've talked about the benefits and the drawbacks of narration uh, through this podcast's history as it pertains to film. Uh, if you stated you're annoyed by these guys, I assume hearing their point of view does not help you at all. But I, I really enjoyed having the the floating conscience of this movie. Uh, but it's I imagine if you're not in with the Daniel, Paul, and Adrian characters, just hearing them talk and try to garner some sympathy was just not going to work for you. Well, I think that that's the problem, actually. I think that maybe these guys would be more interesting if I didn't know every thought that's going through their heads. That's that, <laughs> that's the problem. I, I don't even have the illusion that there's something going on in their brains because you know, the voiceover is just as dumb as their actions. And so there's there's no mystery. Can you imagine if this movie didn't have the voiceover? You'd be trying, trying to figure out what's going on. Like we did Hancock, what was it? Two episodes ago. And uh, the first half of the movie, you know, we mentioned like you don't have uh, Hancock's backstory. So you're kind of trying to figure him out. And if nothing else, that keeps you going, keeps you interested. Here, Michael Bay just can't help himself. Like most people would do one voiceover. If you're a, a, a maestro, like, you know, like Scorsese, you'll do two voiceovers, three if you're doing casino. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he never did that again. Uh, well, I think he might have not in The Irishman. Michael Bay is still introducing voiceovers like an hour and 20 minutes into the movie. <laughs> when Ed Harris shows up, he comes with a voiceover. I think Rebel Wilson gets a voiceover at some point. The The Russian girlfriend gets a voiceover. Why? Why are you doing this? Like, And, it, and none of those voiceovers add anything. They don't give you a different dimension of the characters. So actually, Alex, yeah, I would have liked them better without the voiceover. <laughs> we get several mentions and also direct visuals of gentlemen doing steroids in the gym uh, adrian anthony mackie i think is one of them uh interesting time frame 95 94 was the infamous lauded uh, much publicized and discussed in the years that have followed steroid trial of vince mcmahon and the world wrestling federation so fittingly with one of their biggest stars ever the rock in this movie uh at the peak of his jackness 94 95 and 96 in the WWF that was like dudes were not jacked (laughs) if you look at like Hulk Hogan from 1994 he looks like a stick figure Uh, so got a kick out of that but this was still that whole steroid trial was just a witch hunt people just wanted it was a way to put down wrestling I don't think people really cared about the steroid abuse because it was still rampant in professional sports Um, and you know depending on who you talk to still is so at this point in time dudes hearts weren't blowing up yet 
Uh, and this is the time period where people would would tell you if they were on the gas here, oh, we didn't know like the repercussions of what came with it. Adrian Anthony Mackie does right away because his dick don't work no more. That's a that's a side effect of steroids, and we learn. I think we're kind of bit by bit already learning uh, Daniel's motivations, but I think even if you don't like the character, you got to be able to relate to the guy that just, I just need money so my dick can work. That's so much more noble and understandable than, oh, it's the American dream. I need it. So uh, yeah, right away here, I I fell in love with Anthony Mackie. I'll give you that. That's the most relatable, maybe the only relatable thing here in this movie, other than Ed Harris kind of thinking you know what this sounds like a crazy story let me look into it uh, but the, the, my problem with Anthony Mackie and it's funny that you brought up the whole thing with steroids it's just weird to me he's miscast because out of the three you have Mark Wahlberg you have uh, The Rock and you have Anthony Mackie and Anthony Mackie I mean he's muscular but he still looks like a regular dude so if I were to pick the one guy that's doing steroids out of those three I wouldn't have thought that was him so I would have given the the penis problems to The Rock. That would make more sense. You know, the guy that's just massive and he he has trouble getting an erection. Like to me, that would be that would make sense. Anthony Mackie just looked like they cast him because they liked him and he's a good actor, but he doesn't fit the part. He does, he looks like a dude you could still beat up technically, like in a fight against Wahlberg and The Rock. You you don't stand a chance because they're just too big. But uh, but Mackie, he, he's just a dude. Is that shot when he poses? He looks good. That he has. Uh, I'm not saying he looks that, bad. He looks good, but he no, doesn't no, no. look imposing. He's got the 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 roid build of someone that takes it and just does like heavy lifting, but no crunches, you know, no leg day, anything like that. He's just a, a beefy some bitch. Um, <laughs> speaking of beef, my next note here says Daniel is so fucking dumb. Like all the Mark Wahlberg voiceovers are just perfect. <laughs> chef's kiss all the idiotic things that he says like when he's talking about his heroes scarface and the guys from the godfather and rocky is one that he mentions and just his way of thinking he's such an idiot and that jock doofus mark Wahlberg, just the, his voiceover of it it's basically this movie is mark Wahlberg playing into kind of what people said he was for a long time just a, a big meathead he, he's played this role twice where he basically fulfills it, uh, the prophecy of what Mark Wahlberg would become on film he has this and then when he's like the Southie fuck in The Departed you know <laughs> that is perfect casting on both fronts but well, but the one character is a lot more interesting than the other even though it has less screen time and that's the one in The Departed the one he got nominated for an Oscar for? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's good. I would have been so mad if he had gotten nominated for this because this is like a cheap joke. And and I wouldn't mind it if this movie wasn't... Stunt casting? Well, not even stunt casting, just the, anybody playing this, uh, this role. I mean, it's just easy. I, I, okay, not easy. I imagine getting in the shape that Mark Wahlberg got into this movie, that's, that's going to take dedication and, and hard work. But the acting part of it, I mean, you're just playing a dumb idiot. Like, there's no, there's no, <laughs> you're not flexing your acting muscles with those voiceovers or with just, you know what he does? Wahlberg does a lot of nostril acting in this movie. And, and, and Bay seems to love it because he likes putting the camera right there up on uh, Mark Wahlberg's nostrils. Like, that's, that's really how he shows you emotion. But other than that, I mean, you never see 
an actual breakdown, any sort of like insight. He's just one note the entire movie. It was just like, I believe that if I work hard, I'll get what I deserve. And that really, that's him from the beginning to the end of the movie. Like even at the end of the movie, he's on death row and he still feels the same way. There's, there's no change. There's, it's one note, just like his voiceover. If I believe I deserve it, the universal serve it. <laughs> uh, enter Victor Kershaw, played by Tony Shalhoub. Is this Tony Shalhoub's Contrarian's debut? Doesn't feel like it is, but I can. If he's been in a movie that we've done, it's been a minimal part. America's uncle, Tony Shalhoub. <laughs> Monk. Tony Shalhoub. Not not at the beginning, but basically his arc in this movie is slowly becoming Tommy Lee Jones in Batman Forever. He starts already <laughs> kind of like, I wouldn't say chewing the scenery, but kind of like tasting it, like giving little nibbles. And then by the second half of the movie, it's just like they can't rebuild the set fast enough to keep up with his acting and just how much he's just overacting, really. Please don't tell me that you liked him. He's It's a lot. And <laughs> Tony Shalhoub is awesome. He's a great actor. But clearly the motivation behind his character there was you're the victim, but you need to be as unlikable as possible. So they even like shoehorn in a scene of him making fun of a, a heavyset gal and a kid with acne. And he's just, of course, nasty and mean to everyone he meets. He does have a line that is possibly the line I quote from this movie most. This whole introductory scene with him and uh, Lugo, where he's just going on about his money and all this shit. And, you know, you're just seeing the gears turn in Mark Wahlberg's head. And Wahlberg flippantly tells him, you know, with all this money, maybe sometime, you know, you should buy yourself a salad. And Tony Shalhoub says, you know who invented salad? Poor people. And that's, I quote that all the time. My sister or something, like when we were ordering food, she's like, you want to get a salad? You know who invented salad? Poor people. And, you know, it's... Don't be an asshole, I don't know why. Alex. <laughs> no, I would never use that line genuinely. I quote it around my confidants. I'll say it to you next time we go out to eat. And I love salad. I go crazy on Caesar salad. But for whatever reason, his delivery of it and just the line in general, it's a good bit of writing. You know, it would be different if... Shalhoub was the only character in the movie that is making demeaning remarks against everybody. It's just, yeah, he he fat shames people. He uh, kink shames people. He is a... Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. If <laughs> There's he's... that shot of like this clearly hot, just smoking hot gal in a bikini getting out of the pool. And he looks at Mark Wahlberg and he does that thing with his hand like, eh. That, it's <laughs> like this slow motion shot of him doing that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. He, I mean, he's hateful, but then the movie is hateful and it's a, because it's not just that character. I mean, Wahlberg, his, half of his voiceovers is about how, not just how superior he is to everybody else, but how anybody that doesn't conform to his idea of what a beautiful person is or what a successful person is, is just a piece of shit. You kind of get the feeling as the movie goes on that that's not just Mark Wahlberg's philosophy, but that is the filmmaker's philosophy. It, you kind of, I think that, Michael Bay either intentionally or accidentally blurs the line between how his characters feel and how he feels as a filmmaker. There is never really a moment of redemption or comeuppance to those people that have been picked on or made fun of through the entire movie. Nothing. I mean, even fucking Ed Harris towards the end of the movie, he's kind of excusing Tony Shalhoub's actions or, or making excuses for him, you know, in a way that uh, he's like, oh, yeah, he's a difficult guy, but... I wish that there had been at least one character that had 
somehow gotten the best of them and that it wasn't one of those people that were already involved in the story because everybody involved in the story is an asshole. So I wanted like somebody fresh. That's what makes it interesting. It's, <laughs> that's the whole point of the dude. Like when Victor Kershaw gets freed and the cops don't believe him and don't really want to help him just because he's a fu- fucking asshole. But then and in so, the end, he still comes out on top. Yes, because of the kindness and good nature <laughs> of Ed Harris. That's that's what prevails in the end. Ed Harris is not a nice person. Ed Harris is in it because he's bored. He He's retired and... For some reason, he it's doesn't... It's a way for him to throw it back in the Miami PD's face of like, <laughs> I'm retired and I figured this shit out before y'all did. Yeah. For some reason, he doesn't want to hang out with his wife that's at least 20 years younger than him. Instead, he, he wants to go chasing Mark Wahlberg and, and his cohorts. She is Emily Rutherford. His wife is just perfection in this. Just absolutely fantastic. That's probably the main mention that she'll get in this, but she, her performance is very... Is the unsung hero of this movie. A uh, quick cameo from former world heavyweight boxing king Vladimir Klitschko and guy that ruled the division for about 10 years. Uh, it's really a quick shot of it's just the gym and Mark Wahlberg's holding the heavy bag for him. And you would have to know that's Vladimir Klitschko to make any kind of connection. So there you go. <laughs> uh, Rob Corddry uh, runs the gym, Sun Gym, where uh, Daniel works. And I know you're a big Daily Show guy, so uh, I'm not sure if he falls into your wheelhouse as well, but you know, hot tub time machine. I'm a big fan of, uh, even what happens in Vegas. He plays like Ashton Kutcher's best friend in it. Very funny in that semi pro. He's fucking hilarious. The second Harlan Kumar. He sucks. He's in that. I guess I, I don't I'm not sure I've seen that, but so yeah, he, he plays the head of the gym in this. What's uh, his character's name? John messy. Not was, a good guy. Uh, not at all. A former bodybuilder who ran a gym, and he is just as uh, culpable as the rest of these fuckers in this. Uh, Mark Wahlberg, Daniel's character, turns it around, makes it a muscle mecca, as he calls it. And so business is booming, but like you said, he still kind of feels unfulfilled. Uh, We learn where this motivation comes from in the form of uh, motivational speaker Johnny Wu, played by Julio's absolute (laughs) favorite, Ken Hyong. And now this is one for Contrarian's listeners, y'all know, because Julio has... (laughs) ad nauseum to great extent and lengths gone on about his I wouldn't say disdain but just general level of annoyance that comes with Ken Hyong performances. Yeah, I I I don't like his stick. That's the that's a short version. And and now this movie gives me an addendum to something I said during our Hangover 3 episode, which was a little bit of Ken Jong goes a long way. And then this movie proves that even a little bit of Ken Jong couldn't be too much because he has like maybe I don't know, five minutes of screen time altogether and just one mm-hmm. real scene. And it was still too much. It was just, <laughs> come on, man. Especially because I I see him and it's like, it's just Ken Jong. He's not even doing anything. He's just being loud. And I mean, I'll give him this. He doesn't look like he's reading cue cards. So at least he memorizes dialogue. But <laughs> that's, that's as far as it goes. There's nothing he does in here that is funny. If you think that... Ken Jong, an unimposing Asian man yelling at people is funny, then of course this is gonna be great. This is gonna be exactly what you want from from a Ken Jong cameo. But I was so glad that he didn't show up again. He plays a motivational speaker that this is kind of what pushes Daniel over the edge. He goes to one of his seminars and realizes I'm a doer. That becomes his battle cry throughout the duration of the film. And he wants to be rich. He wants to have a, you know, he talks about a lawn to mow and he wants to 
have everything that he sees other people have. One of my favorite lines in this, um, from a comedic standpoint, because it's so it's just thrown out and not really there's no time for you to absorb it. When he first is starting to lure Adrian into this, they're both working out and he gets mad at the weights. He like throws him down or something and he's flexing and he's he says to Adrian, he's like, Don't you, you know, don't you wish you had more than this, or don't you wish you could be somewhere else than here? And then Anthony Mackey's like, I don't know, man. I like it here. The weights are new. It's comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this movie repeatedly establishes how dumb our trifecta of main characters are. And rounding out the trifecta, enter Dwayne The Rock Johnson, um, Paul Doyle in this film. And as I already mentioned, the unbelievable revealing shot of him doing chin-ups with his back just, God, as wide as the bumper of a fucking Hummer. And he is there. He came recently out of prison work, looking for work. I think he was there to work at the gym. Uh, we get a series of flashbacks throughout this that establish our characters, like their backstories and whatnot. The flashback sequences are even more Michael Bay than the rest of the movie. The flashback <laughs> sequences are all shot like when they're in that Land Rover uh, in Armageddon with like the camera just going all over the place and the color hue just turned all the way up. All the gain. Yeah. Yeah. The pain is in the now. The gain is in the past. Uh, but we see The Rock had a Coke problem, got busted on around Christmas time trying to rob someone's home. Another cameo here as we have a flashback to The Rock on the prison yard where he gets into a scuffle with uh, one of his famous rivals from the World Wrestling Federation and uh, a legitimate Olympic gold medalist uh, won the gold medal in Atlanta in 1996 in the sport of amateur wrestling. Mr. Kurt Angle uh, makes an appearance here. And again, not pointed out, not really called out to the audience, but if you're like me or even just have a slight knowledge of the professional wrestling or uh, Olympic wrestling stratospheres, then you'll recognize Kurt Angle here. Kurt Angle, um, Julio, is the one that he frisbees the the weight at. I was about to ask you, how badly does he get it? Wait, uh, well, it was revenge because Kurt Angle beat The Rock for the WWF Championship in 2000, and you know he screwed him out of the belt, so The Rock got his revenge here by hurling uh, a barbell weight at his head. Well, uh, I think that The Rock... Was I, I love The Rock. I love Dwayne Johnson. I'm a big fan. I think that he's very charismatic. And I think that when a movie, when a filmmaker knows how to use him, how to deploy him, he is unstoppable. He, I mean, there's a reason why he's a superstar. Mm-hmm. I felt that this movie wasn't the best way for him to showcase range. And I, much like with our last episode, actually, when I was having trouble figuring out uh, my feelings about Meg Ryan's performance because mm-hmm. there's a Meg Ryan persona and then there's what she's trying to play and there's an element of just intrigue, just curiosity. I'm like, I'm watching not because this is good, I'm watching it because this is fascinating, it's new. And there's a little bit of that here where I think that critics that praise The Rock's performance in this movie are just praising the fact that he's doing something different and not necessarily praising something that is good. Because, I'm going to repeat it, I like Dwayne Johnson, but he is not, I mean, his range is limited. And this movie asks him to go to some pretty crazy places. And Michael Bay does what he can with his cinematic prowess, (laughs) the way that he shoots the scenes, the way he lights them, and the way he scores them, to kind of help 
the rock along in with this performance but ultimately i found that out of those three main guys Wahlberg, mackie and johnson like the rock was the one that was kind of didn't feel real he, he felt just a little too cartoony the other two are also bumbling idiots and they're over the top but the rock was the only one that i didn't buy as a real person and uh I am glad that he chose not to pursue more projects along this line because I think that he's a smart guy and he probably figured out that this was not really the the illusion wasn't gonna last like it works in one movie only and uh, but if he mm-hmm. had tried to do it again you would have realized that no he's better playing like this type of bigger than life character in an adventure movie in an action movie not in this sort of weird attempt at comedy slash satire uh, but now of course you gotta tell me that you think The Rock is great here because you're a wrestling fan. Uh, that that ship has sailed when it comes to the Rock's performances. I think after <laughs> after Doom, I couldn't just chalk up the Rock's movies being good just because I was a wrestling fan. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the Rock is phenomenal in this. I think I have a little bit more uh, ammo to discuss his performance in this for our second portion of the podcast. But yeah, I think he's great. He's very funny. I mean, the Rock that was. I, colossal part of his draw in wrestling was that he was hilarious and had just unreal timing in this. He's like a physical presence. And uh, that's a thing that sometimes gets forgotten because he came from the industry of pro wrestling. When you think of like Hulk Hogan, ultimate warrior, you know, guys of that build, John Cena, don't bring, I mean, we watched uh, no holes barred. So we know what a comedic genius Hulk Hogan was. You can't (laughs) compare what the rock is trying to do here with, with Hogan accomplished. No, what I was going to say is The Rock's heyday in wrestling, he was never nearly as big as he is in this movie. So that's a huge thing that like makes his presence way more commanding and holy shit. Uh, he had already come back for the two WrestleMania matches with John Cena by this point. He was already jacked Dwayne Johnson. But in his prime, he was not. He looked like a different person. So seeing him in this and the visual of it is breathtaking. And then the actual performance he has here. The the difference is with the comedic thing is it's a lot of just his like facial expressions. He doesn't have like lines that he delivers that are just smack dab hilarious. But okay, I want to talk about the the combination of him and and and, and Anthony Mackie. But to bridge that gap, Larry Hankin shows up here and he plays this creepy, touchy feely priest, and it feels too on the nose that it was just random that Larry Hankin got this role. This felt like Michael Bay wrote this for him. It feels like he had some weird interaction with him at a party in Hollywood once and was like, I'm going to cast you as a priest that tries to grope the rock. I don't know when, I don't know how, but it'll come one day. It's a very strange role because he is somewhat of an accomplished actor and to have this kind of tiny role where... Really, the payoff is The Rock just beats the holy fuck out of him. Yeah, he's, he's been in uh, a lot of things, but he has not been in The Rock. <laughs> he, he wanted to be. He just <laughs> couldn't make it happen. All right, so Larry Hankin gets us bridged from where Dwayne left off to now, you know, he doesn't really have a place to stay, so he's going to be intertwined with these guys because he needs help. And he's a former addict, and unfortunately, it's already, you know, he's going down this rabbit hole. This is where we establish the dynamic here between Anthony Mackie and Dwayne Johnson of they're almost like cartoon characters with their back and forths that they have. Um, Julio, as a, you know, a Marvel guy, you have the the Falcon uh-huh. and then 
I guess I don't know. You're not as devoted to the DC universe as you are to the Marvel one, but The Rock is Black Adam. Quite injustice. Yeah. So you get, there's a lot of, you know, watching this in 2021, there's a lot of weight. There's a lot of beef on the screen here. <laughs> I, I'm going to guess that you, you were not as smitten with their chemistry as I was. No, because it, it's just, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about Mark Wahlberg's performance. It, it's just, it's low hanging fruit. It, it, there's nothing easier, I think, than writing dumb people being dumb. You know, write dumb people being smart. That Now, that's a challenge. Or smart people being dumb. But dumb people being dumb, which is what this movie does for over two hours, that's just concentrated to 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I'll, I'll laugh at it, you know, on YouTube or whatever. But when it goes throughout the entire movie, it just wears me out really quickly. And that's really what these interactions are, what, what all the interactions are in this movie. I mean, I would say the only smart person is Ed Harris. And he comes in really late into the movie, and he's barely there. Rebel Wilson, Peter Stormare, it's an all-star affair that we have going on here. Uh, as Anthony Mackie's at the doctor trying to get uh, you know, a diagnosis and also some help with his uh, impotence. We find out it's a steroid-induced situation of uh, impotence. He hits it off, though, with Rebel Wilson right away here. You can tell they're destined to become the beast with two backs. Um, so they devise this plan. They're going to kidnap Victor Kershaw. It takes them three attempts to finally get him. According to the IMDb trivia, there was actually a total of seven failed attempts to kidnap the Kershaw character. So we only see three of them here. For what it amounts to, you could have just done one. That's the brilliance. Like they have these intricate plans, and then the way they kidnap him is just Anthony Mackie hits him in the face with a chaser. <laughs> uh, I did not. Something else that I didn't enjoy in this movie was just this whole the, the storytelling device of these guys just constantly failing upwards. You know, they, they're idiots, and they're not even. They're just too lucky. Everything that they do is not done properly. They continuously mess up their own plans. And yet, they luck out enough to where the story progresses to the next level. So after a while, that gets tiresome. You know what I mean? Like It would be different if they were dumb and they messed up their plans, but then at least one of them would always contribute a way to move forward. But in this case, it's just like, even though they do everything wrong, they still prevail because the movie has to keep going. <laughs> So they finally do kidnap Kershaw. They get all this equipment, these tasers, and uh, they don't have guns, but like batons and shit. Lugo is hooked up with a place he can use. It's a warehouse that he said his, his, his friend said he could use. It's like a sex toy warehouse. We get this shot that seems like it goes on forever of the rock just staring at this wall of dildos. <laughs> and um, there's one that's like the size of a fucking uh, leaf blower. And it's called like the Great American Challenge or something. It's... <laughs> You know, you think you've seen it all and you, you see something like that. Uh, as soon as they get Victor into the warehouse, though, and tied down and blindfolded, he figures it out. Uh, because it's mentioned earlier in the movie that he doesn't care for uh, Daniel Lugo's cologne. And his scent is the sense most tied to memory. So he smells it and figures it out, realizes who he is. So the whole plan falls apart. They take shifts watching him. Their goal is they're going to get him to sign everything over, so they're intermittently torturing him. He does kind of become friends with the Rock. He calls him El Dad, which uh, means loved by God. They form a friendship over sobriety. <laughs> There's a part where Tony Shalhoub's just yelling, I need a drink. I need a drink. And the Rock from up high yells, we don't keep spirits here, and I'm sober. And he goes, me too. And the Rock goes, praise Jesus, or something like that. It's... Oh, it's, it's tremendous. If The Rock could act, it would be tremendous. Do you think, Alex, this is more of a moral question rather than a, an art appreciation question, but I guess they, they kind of overlap. 
that this movie is irresponsible in the way that it might encourage similar people to attempt the kind of things that uh, Wahlberg and Anthony Mackie and The Rock do here. Because it kind of, by the end of the movie, it kind of makes the point that they almost got away with it, even though they're complete idiots. Mm -hmm. Like, if they tried just a little harder, they would have gotten away with it. They would have succeeded. Isn't it irresponsible of Michael Bay to just basically celebrate the ingenuity of the American idiot? It's extremely interesting you bring that up, Julio, because one of the things that I thought about when I was watching this is this is the type of movie that those fucking weirdos that love Joker and Fight Club, (laughs) this is the type of movie they should celebrate. You know, those people that post a picture of Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker with some quote from the movie on their timeline or what have you. Though that Fight Club, Punisher, you know, that type of thing that they cling to, this Wolf of Wall Street and Spring Breakers, you know, all the the American Dream trifecta from 2013, those are the types of movies you would think they would associate with more. But then it may make them realize how dumb they are if they do that. So that's kind of why they don't. I agree with your point to a certain extent. This movie could wrongly motivate someone or make them believe they could do this too but where the movie succeeds it immediately cuts off that train of thought because it shows these guys don't know what the fuck they're doing and you don't either so don't even try because in the end you're probably just going to end up on death row <laughs> you're not mark Wahlberg or the rock you're going to do 15 years and you know end up singing in the church choir choose your destiny that guy's out there alex that guy's out there right now and still apologizing <laughs> Uh, the biggest snag they hit here with Victor Kershaw is they need the papers notarized. They get him to sign it, uh, but he needs it notarized in order to you know transfer these funds. And uh, this is where the forgery and illegality—not forgery, but basically the malfeasance—begins with Rob Corddry's character, uh, John Messi, where he's a notary. He notarizes these things illegally that shouldn't be because uh, Victor Kershaw's not there in the present. All this money gets transferred over the deed to his house, so. Everything is going according to plan. Uh, the difference is uh, versus what the original outcome was. They, I still don't understand how they thought they were going to be able to keep Victor alive and just take all his shit. But here they, they said, because he knows who we are, we have to kill him. So they attempt to kill him, and they can't even do that. They're so dumb that uh, they put him in a car and floor it into a backhoe. Anthony Mackie puts a seatbelt on him, though. And then they try to blow up the car. That doesn't work. The Rock hits him with the van they're in. That doesn't work. He backs over his head, but the way his head's positioned below the curb, the tire doesn't really do anything except just leave treadmark on his face. It's a shit show of monumental proportion. It was a lot funnier in Weekend at Bernie's. And at least there, it was more believable because (laughs) Bernie was actually dead. Somehow, Tony Shalhoub does not die after all this. How? The... The Colombian the will that he has, apparently. The will to get revenge. It's uh, you know, just the the desire to get even, I guess. I don't I don't know. But it, he's having a hard time. He almost bit his tongue off in the process. He is beat to shit. He's in the hospital. The cops, the first round of detectives come to visit him. One of them looks straight out of the seventies. He's got like an afro with uh, Irish sideburns. And um they just they don't believe him. They think he's making it up, you know, the the three ninja bodybuilders and they even insinuate that it could have been like a sex thing gone awry because of all the sex toys they found in his car. So he's up a creek right now. He doesn't really know where to turn or what to do. So this is where we enlist the services of one Mr. Ed Harris, who plays 
Isn't his name Ed in this? Yeah, yep. Ed Dubois. <laughs> That's how lazy the writing is. <laughs> He's a private detective, a, a PI, uh, retired off the Miami police force. And at first, also he he refuses to take the case because he thinks he's lying. So he he hears his tale on the phone. And he tells him, "Look, if this is true, you shouldn't be staying in the hospital. You know, these people are gonna. It's a public place. They're gonna come and find you. And that they do. Adrian, Daniel, and Paul enter the hospital and scrubs looking standing out like three of the sorest thumbs you've ever seen and they're going to um, kill him right so yeah their plan is he grabs a scalpel and he's just going to kill him in his hospital bed so we spent i don't know 10 minutes with them arguing about how none of them wanted to really kill uh, tony shaloub earlier because they were they were just too squeamish to do it and then suddenly now they're okay like all three of them are 100 percent okay with just going and, and doing the deed you're <laughs> just killing him in cold blood right here. Uh, one of the doctors at the hospital, though, as Mark Wahlberg explains, you know, I'm his primary caregiver from Miami General. He asked him, he's like, why are you dressed for surgery in our hospital? And Mark Wahlberg says, well, I like to be prepared for anything. His delivery of it is just absolutely perfect. Isn't that where you get like a, a sort of like a subtitle that says perfect execution? Yes. Yeah. And this leads to a montage because they see all the money they have. There's the shot of them like putting their money in a tanning bed because why not? And Anthony Mackie's like, what if he goes to the cops? And he's like, he already did. And they didn't do anything. So they think, you know, the party's on. They think it's they've won. And so we get this montage of them all doing extravagant things with their money. Uh, we get a shot of The Rock doing cocaine off the the blonde's ass. Uh, what's her name? <laughs> Serena. Uh, Serena. Yeah, Bar Polly Paley is her her shoot name. So, as a wrestling fan, I had two moments where I realized The Rock was no longer of our world. <laughs> One of them was when I saw Doom for the first time, and he said "fuck" because I've never heard the Rock up until that point. I'd never heard The Rock say "fuck" because you can't say that on television. So I was like, "Oh my god." He said, fuck. And then when I saw him do cocaine off this blonde's ass in this movie, I was like, he has he has moved on from us. <laughs> he, has, he has forgotten the little people and has moved on to bigger and better things, and God bless him for it. There's no going back. Ed Dubois decides he's going to give this uh, a go. He's going to meet with Victor Kershaw. So we get like kind of this buddy comedy on the side with Tony Shalhoub and Ed Harris. <laughs> Where, you know, Tony Shalhoub's just really irritable and mad about everything. And Ed Harris is just this calming, you know, very serene presence that he kind of weeds out the details and tries to, you know, thread his own tale uh, about what potentially could be here. He tries to Um, uh, infiltrate the gym. And that was probably the most nerve wracking moment in the movie. Where, uh, That's like the heat moment where you get Ed Harris and Mark Wahlberg on the screen at the same time. Yeah, except that Ed Harris is lifting weights and putting it bluntly. He looks kind of scrawny, especially next to Wahlberg there and, and also surrounded by everybody else in the gym. And I'm like, he's going to hurt himself. This is just... He does. And, and he does. Eventually he did. So that might be the most realistic moment in the movie. They sent an old man to the gym <laughs> to, to play and with the got big hurt. boys and then he <laughs> fucked up his back. <laughs> So he's infiltrating. He's, you know, closing in on this case, trying to learn more about it. Mark Wahlberg has become like a community leader living in Kershaw's house now. The community is really, you know, starting to take a liking to him. He leads like a fitness class for the kids there. Uh, unfortunately, Dwayne has derailed. He, you know, he's completely addicted to coke and, you know, running parallel to Adrian getting married to Red the Rebel Wilson character in this. Dwayne robs a Garda truck. 
And as we've known <laughs> from years of working in retail, and I worked at a bank for a while, those guys don't fuck around, man. And so <laughs> he takes him out. He tries to get money out of the bag. That ink pouch explodes on his face. And then the, the cops are after him. He ends up getting shot. His big toe gets shot off. He takes it with him, shows up to the wedding, you know, covered in green paint, limping. Is I think he has like a trash bag or like a Target bag wrapped around his foot. And he's there. He needs another score. Uh, Alex, as we're recounting this, like I remember my feeling watching the movie and being like, my God, there's more. There's more to come. <laughs> like I remember that that realization when, when the Rock's like, no, we need another score. At first I'm like, oh, they're going to shoot him down and then they get caught. And then I remember, oh no, there is another score. They 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 go through with it. There's still like, I don't know, forty minutes of movie left. <laughs> How do you like this? I don't understand. You are Mister Ninety Minutes, no more. And this this just goes on forever. One of the few movies I could say that generally earns its two and nine two hour and nine minute runtime. I always gave shit to our friend Reed when he would say because you and I are not fans of Wolf of Wall Street, and he would say that. That movie wouldn't have worked if it was wasn't that long, which I heavily disagree with. But that's how I feel about this. So, pot kettle, I, I get it. <laughs> Hypocrisy's there. Uh, they have another score that they want to pull off, but the walls are already closing in. Kershawn calls Rob Corddry's character, uh, John Messi, and tells him, "You know, give me my fucking money back. You robbed me." And this leads to the most Rob Corddry line of the movie. He's really reserved and just kind of. Uh, not a fly on the wall, but just kind of a background character. He's not what you would come to think of Rob Corddry, except for this one moment where he's talking to him on the phone and Tony Shalhoub's yelling at him and Mark Wahlberg's there and he hangs up the phone and uh, Daniel Lugo tells him, Star 69. <laughs> Rob Corddry goes, you you want me to have sex with him? <laughs> it's so good. It's like the perfect Corddry delivery. Ed Harris tells the PD, he tells the Miami police uh, I don't know if he's the captain. Yeah, Captain Lopez, played by Tony Plana, who plays Amy's dad in Superstore, which I've been watching a lot of recently. <laughs> Not chasing Amy. No, no, so to speak. Uh, he tells him, he's like, hey, you missed out on this case, but you can still make it right. These guys are going to get hungry, and they're probably going to kill someone again. And he's just like, ah. <laughs> but Tony and Ed... It's a budding friendship. He has him over for dinner at his house, and you know Tony Schlub's still recovering and drops his dinner roll and to prove something to himself, you know, reaches down to pick it up. And this is where Emily Rutherford, sissy, she plays Ed Harris's wife. She has that great line of "Every man needs to fight for his dignity." She's so reserved and is basically just like she's Morpheus in this. She just kind of just says these incredibly prophetic things and then just lets it simmer or just you know exits frame. Yeah, then the movie leaves her behind. Because really, there is oh, absolutely. There's nothing. There's not enough of that. She's a woman. Movie. We can't spend too much time focusing. Yeah, she's there like all the other women. Really, just it's an object. In this case, it's a nice, peaceful object. But otherwise, I mean, in the end, her real reason to be in the movie is just so that Ed Harris has someone to come back to at the end. So it's not because she has any sort of agency. They begin moving in on the porn king, as they repeatedly refer to him. Frank Griga, played by Michael Raspali, and Mr. Griga's female associate, Christina Furton, played by Kelly Lefkowitz. Both of these are, you know, for some of the liberties the movie takes with the real story, these were actual characters that were killed by the uh, Sun Jim gang. 
Yeah, they basically just wanted to swindle him out of money, and they do a terrible job of doing it. <laughs> and Mark Wahlberg's just too overzealous, overeager at this point to really make any hay come from this. So he ends up just flipping out and inadvertently killing this guy. I mean, he beats him up pretty significantly, but he ends up killing him accidentally by he kicks this um, bench press and the weights aren't secured. And so they fly off one end. And then, of course, much like a uh, seesaw, they (laughs) exit stage left and land on this dude's head (laughs) and crush his fucking skull. All the while, Everybody Dance Now by the CNC Music Factory is playing in the background. It's still a pretty... I mean, I don't derive any joy from calling Michael Bay a coward, but that's really the, the most fitting word for for this sort of uh, approach to telling this story. Because fucking commit. There is no point here in making Mark Wahlberg accidentally kill this guy. Just have him kill him. For, for legality matters, you know, because he ended up in the, uh, getting... The death sentence, anyway. So, just have him go all out. Like he loses his temper and he beats him up and he kills him. Having him die accidentally only—it's only there so that we don't turn on him as as a protagonist, which is bullshit. Because this is a movie about bad people, so you shouldn't be afraid of us turning on him. And it's the same actually when you come to the, when it comes to the Rock, his uh, him the Rock hitting rock bottom. I mean, it's just. It's so tame. Okay, so he so he tries to rob a, a Garda truck, you know? But this is... It doesn't help that he's in the movie with Mark Wahlberg. And instantly, when you think Mark Wahlberg, you think Boogie Nights. And Mark Wahlberg hits rock bottom Boogie Nights in one of the most brutal sequences in that movie. And so to see the rock kind of acting like it's the end of the world because he got shot and lost a toe, I was like, dude, it's not really that bad until you are out in the corner, like, giving hand jobs, trying to get cocaine. So... Overall, it just feels like Michael Bay trying to make a gritty movie, but not really making a gritty movie because he's still trying to, I guess, appeal to a mainstream audience. I just, I didn't buy it. So Frank's dead. His wife becomes aware. She is then injected with horse tranquilizer by Anthony Mackie to try to just buy them some time. And Mark Wahlberg says, I got to get a pump. So starts lifting some weights. Things just devolve into absolute chaos here. They go back to their mansion. They're attempting to get into this big safe that they have. And they're attempting to extract the information from uh, the woman, Christina, the Z in the middle. Unfortunately, who who would have known this? Not the Fox News folk, but <laughs> too much horse medicine can kill you after a while. And so she dies, and Anthony Mackie jumps on the toilet, and he's on the phone with Mark Wahlberg, and he says... Her soul has left her body. <laughs> the bitch is cold, man. Uh, the Rock is just completely giving up sobriety. He's like housing a bottle of vodka, just watching this all unfold. He's, did you get the code? And um, they end up just stealing the dude's cars at his house. The Rock, on his way out, feeds his toe to this little adorable puppy that's there, <laughs> leaving behind just trace amounts of DNA. <laughs> While all this was ensuing... Um, Anthony Mackie's dog, Adrian Dorball's dog, gets away. And the dog was a, a greyhound named Tasty Reuben, who was owned by Victor Kershon. Uh, Mark Wahlberg basically just took it and gave it to Adrian. And the dog runs back to the track where it's from. And the, uh, the guy who runs the track knows the dog. He's like, hey, Tasty Reuben, is that you? Sees that the collar has the wrong name and address on it, so reports it to the police. Police show up at the house. This is where uh, you know things start to unravel. The theme kicks in, the the 30-second loop. Yeah. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, these guys are just trying to figure out what they're going to do with these fucking bodies. They try to chop them up. They do chop them up, put them into some barrels, throw them in a swamp somewhere. In their infinite wisdom, <laughs> they realize they have fingerprints. So they chop their hands off while Can You Hear Me Knocking by the Rolling Stones plays in the background. Uh, the Rock grills these hands. <laughs> it's probably the lasting image from this movie is him outside operating, you know, one of those $18 charcoal grills you can get at Walmart with uh, four hands on it. Should have been a George Foreman, just with the, no. with the grease strip there. No, that would just lean him up. Like, that would just make him <laughs> lean and ready to eat. This this is going to just char him to a crisp. Um, I think that another problem here with this third act is just that you know that they're doomed. Michael Bay made the mistake of opening the movie. There's no way out. Yeah, I mean, it's not just that they're dumb, but also that... He opened the movie showing us the uh, Mark Wahlberg about to get arrested, so we know where this is headed, and there is really no no mystery. I mean, we know they're so stupid that of course they're just making so many mistakes. One of them is is going to sink them, probably more than one of them. So there's not even that kind of uh, mystery of like, oh man, they're so smart. I wonder how they get caught. It's like no, they're idiots. It's a wonder that they haven't gotten caught sooner. And so it just feels repetitive and we know where this is headed. So can you please just get there? And and really what is probably the worst thing is that we catch up to the beginning of the movie and the movie doesn't end. It keeps going. (laughs) The takedown is on. We're going back to the beginning. The rock's apprehended. He goes back to the church with the the gropey priest, Larry Hankin. And what I took from this is like, man, he must have fucked him up because it's been presumably like two, three months since he beat him up and dude's still got a black eye. And he still let him in. He did. I mean, God's about forgiveness. Uh, Adrian's taken down at his home. This actually, uh, you know, on our Bachelorette patron episode, we talked about Rebel Wilson. Kind of a mixed bag sometimes when it comes to her acting. And in this, she's there's nothing more 2013. And, you know, we're about a decade removed from that. So I can say that it's not like it was just two years ago. There's nothing more 2013 than Rebel Wilson in the majority of this movie. Oh, yeah. Just her being Rebel Wilson. She's just riffing. Exactly. This it accounts for 20 seconds of the movie. But her acting here is very good. Like she knows something is very wrong. And she's just like sitting in the dark when the SWAT pulls up. She answers the door, clearly terrified, and says, you know, honey, there's some people here to see you. And then it shows them taking her out. And she's like crying. And she there's that one moment where she like turns around, like maybe I should go back, but then just keeps going. That's where it should have ended for her. Because she shows back up I agree. to make it the Rebel Wilson show again. Yep, we agree there, Alex. Because I was about to ask you, isn't it a shame that they won't let her have that as her final moment and instead they bring her out at the end during the trial to just do another stand-up session where she's just (laughs) again just riffing and being funny what a shame i will agree with that so two of the three players have been taken in so we need the head of the triple threat here they need to track down shane douglas they need to track down daniel lugo who's fleeing to the bahamas Goes into one of the banks he knows victor has money in uh goes to take those accounts i always forget like the Bahamas aren't that far away. Like to me, you know, just growing up and seeing pictures of it and videos of it, I always just viewed it as like this far away mystical island. And no, you can just like hop in a boat and get there pretty quickly. In a helicopter. Yes. Daniel gets there, uh, starts depleting the the accounts, looks in the safety deposit box, just family heirlooms and stuff. All the while he's looking there, Ed Harris comes in and I'm Ed Harris. Where's Mark Wahlberg? 
Why is a retired PI leading the cops in this investigation? Because they dropped the ball, man. They realized that they can't live up to Ed Harris. They probably he was probably back on the force the next week after this. <laughs> Tony Plana just handed down his captain status and said, you know, welcome, welcome back, space girl. Uh, he sees Daniel Lugo. He tries to flee and escape. Gets shot in the leg. Uh, this is where Kershaw kind of gets his revenge because he mows him down in his car and. Uh, they're able to apprehend Daniel Lugo. They hop in a chopper and they're taking him back to Miami. Did we need that? Um, Did we need Tony Shalhoub to get a hero moment? Well, I think it challenges you, the viewer, to see if you're really cheering for him or not. Were you cheering for him, Alex? um, I was cheering for justice. (laughs) I'd say I was cheering for him, but they get Daniel back to America, back to Miami when they're landing and, you know, there's just a swath of Police, FBI, law enforcement officials, as far as the eye can see, Mark Wahlberg turns to Ed Harris and says, whoa, is this all for me? And he says, yep, they're going to want to know why. And he says, because I'm a doer. So that Johnny Woo shit paid off. And then, which is like probably the most Michael Bay shot of the entire film, is the slow motion shot of him. It's just like his feet coming off the the (laughs) chopper and then hitting the ground and making the emphatic doom. Uh, this must be the ugliest Michael Bay movie yet. It's colorful. It's it's green, and I guess if you're into the aesthetic, that that old like rundown whorehouse aesthetic, then this works. What but, are you talking about? Like they're in like penthouses and mansions. The majority of the movie. Yeah, but it's always like that that greenish tint that just makes it all ugly and dirty. And I get it. I mean, I I I get that ultimately. I mean, it doesn't. It didn't go over my head, Alex. It's impossible. I can't imagine it went over anyone's head. This movie is criticizing America, but I think that there's a way to criticize America without making fun of America, and that's where this movie kind of fumbles. And maybe that's why it's not being appreciated as much as something like Joker. Or something like Fight Club, <laughs> you know? Wow. I, I didn't need so many shots of the American flag just kind of like flapping in the background whenever somebody was doing something <laughs> stupid. Once is more than enough. And maybe too much. Flapping already. flaccidly, not unlike <laughs> Anthony Mackie's penis. Yes. So now we go to the trial. And it, you know, like we said, it's a, it's a mixed bag of <laughs> acting and seriousness because we get the Rebel Wilson show again. Uh, the rock on the stand is incredible. Like the <laughs> shot of him just, you know, it, it, he's like pointing at Daniel. He's like, he lied to me. He, he's <laughs> manipulator of manipulators. There's just all those random, you know, interspersed shots of him crying and pointing and uh, giving himself the, the Catholic cross gimmick. And Mark Wahlberg has the incredible line of we're going to walk. They have no proof. <laughs> Uh, Victor Kershaw comes and testifies and Ed Harris then kind of takes us away with his narration of saying it took him 14 minutes to sentence them both to death. Uh, Paul got 15 years. Adrian and Daniel were both sentenced to death, which is true. And I believe they're both still on death row. Uh, I know neither of them have actually been executed. Uh, I don't know if either of them talked their way out of it, but that was that. And then we get the Ed Harris send off. Where he says, it really is the little things in life. Like having a really young wife. Yes. And then the iconic, you know, one of my favorite, this is real talk in Trans Corner, what have you. One of my favorite closing narrations in film, maybe ever, is Mark Wahlberg's closing here. Because he's so fucking dumb, (laughs) but he thinks he's in the right and he's smart. And he has that thing about... 
life's going to give me another set and I'm going to rock it and talking about, I just wanted to be like the rest of you, but then I wanted more. And that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, you had already made allusion to this narration a little bit earlier in, in the episode. So I take it you were just rolling your eyes and just ready for it to be over at this point. Yeah. I mean, not that I expected the the final statement of the movie to redeem the previous two hours and five minutes. But I don't know. I guess part of me still had hope that there would be something, that, they, that the movie would say something other than, weren't they dumb? In America. Only in America, folks. It really doesn't. And that's, I think that I could put up with the entire movie if Michael Bay had ultimately surprised me by having something insightful to say about about America, about the American dream, about the things that people are willing to do to to fulfill the American dream, to achieve the American dream. But there's really none of that here. I mean, he's just, again, it's just all cheap shots, all like really obvious points repeated to death. So yeah, I was done. But yes, we're taken away by Coolio and Gangster's Paradise and the closing line of the movie. It's the American dream. <laughs> Beautiful. Excellent. Perfect. Superb. <laughs> That's not even real talk. Julio, do you have anything to add here before we move this along to real talk? I think we've had a bit of back and forth and i think there's some that's going to follow perhaps even more passionately and intensely <laughs> yeah no let's let's go to real talk we all start out equal little blobs of blood and muscle it's a setup of awesome potential most people never develop that potential i knew early on i was not most people there you go there you go yes Come on, big man. Work it, baby. Come on. Let's go. Because if you're willing to do the work, you can have anything. That's what makes the US of A great. When it started, America was just a handful of scrawny colonies. Now, it's the most buff, pumped up country on the planet. That's pretty rad. All of my heroes are self-made. Rocky, Scarface, all the guys from The Godfather, they all started out with nothing and built their way to perfection. The way to prove yourself is to better yourself. That's the American dream. I have no sympathy for people who squander their gifts. It's sickening. It's worse than sickening. It's unpatriotic. And we are back. But before we get into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let patrons know what they can expect on our patron feed. And it's also where we let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. This time around, well, we are in the middle of September as we drop this episode. It's time for a new set of QVRs, uh, quick video reviews. For this month, it's going to be Alex giving me an assignment and me giving Alex an assignment. Just just to shake things up, keep things spicy. Alex, I am going to uh, have you watch the uh, Netflix movie The Land of Steady Habits, starring Ben Mendelsohn who uh, played a scroll in Captain Marvel. But you probably know him from other movies. Rogue One. He was a bad guy in Rogue One. Uh, It's uh, written and directed by Nicole Hall of Center, who is the writer and director of one of our favorite movies, uh, Enough Said. My favorite movie of 2013. Yeah, Hope Davis is in it, too. I forgot that you had it that high. It outranked Pain and Gain. (laughs) How appropriate. Julio... You will be watching uh, a Criterion that I own. You will not be watching my Criterion version. I apologize. <laughs> you you will be watching the HBO Max uh, streaming of 
Gimme Shelter, the Rolling Stones documentary highlighting the infamous Altamont Freeway uh, free concert from 1970. No, 69, because it was the follow-up to Woodstock. They attempted to basically one-up Woodstock with this show they did. For those of you who have already seen previous QVRs, then you know that kind of the gimmick is that we record the video in three parts. One, before we watch the movie, telling you what we think is going to happen. Then another little segment where we're halfway through the movie telling you how it's going and how we think it's going to end. And then a final segment at the end after we're done with the movie, wrapping up and giving a score. So I'm going in almost entirely buckrow blind. And, and I don't think that you know anything about land Seventy habits other than what I just I told you. So this should make for, for an interesting couple of videos available only on our patron channel, along with uh, other cool things like uh, all our deleted clips that didn't make it into the episodes and our pre-recording notes and of course contrarians after hours our spin-off show where we talk about other things that we watched or things that we've read that we played uh, alex what are you bringing to contrarians after hours this time i got so excited on our last episode just regaling you with the stories of my trip to vegas that i forgot uh to bring up Something I texted you about what feels like months ago. It was probably just like, you know, three or four weeks ago. Uh, I watched uh, in an attempt to continue on with the Adele Exerchopoulos. Uh, I actually watched an interview with her and heard her pronounce her own name. And it's like one of those pronunciations that I I don't have. I'm not confident <laughs> enough in a faux French accent to pronounce it correctly. So I'm just going to Americanize it. Uh, in an attempt to continue on her filmography and see if Blue is the Warmest Color was lightning in a bottle or if she is really hella talented, I watched Racer and the Jailbird, uh, a film from just a few years ago with her and uh, Matthias. I, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Bad guy from The Drop. He was also in Rust and Bone with... Uh, Talia al Ghul. That's what I was going to say. I can't even remember her name. Marion Cotillard. All right. Uh, Matthias Schoenarts, I believe, is the American pronunciation of it. Uh, wow, is all I can say about that movie. Of uh, <laughs> An extremely generous 36% on Rotten Tomatoes. But there is some... <laughs> serious redeeming quality to it adele is one of them but like we'll get into it in after hours exactly uh the hilarity that is that movie well on my end alex i have i'm, I'm gonna tiptoe i'm gonna do my best to talk to you about the vanishing this 1988 movie uh talk to you about it without spoiling it didn't even know about it and then our friends from film busters covered it uh in a very recent episode and i just watched it because it was it sounded interesting. Uh, well, I'll tell you about it, but I watched the original. Uh, Are you talking about the Dutch movie? The, the, the Vanishing? Vanishing? Yes. Have you seen yeah, it? I own the criterion of that. Oh my God, this is amazing. We're going to have a conversation about the Vanishing then. I'm not going to have to tiptoe around anything because you've seen it. Yes. It's <laughs> yes. terrifying. Uh, and then I watched the most recent uh, Sofia Coppola movie, On the Rocks. I don't know if you've seen the poster. Ooh, I want to see that. Yeah, right now it's an Apple TV exclusive. That sounded way more sexual than it needed to. I was saying that as I was like exhaling on a yawn, so it sounded like... <laughs> Sound like I just discovered something about myself. It's it's only on the the Apple TV thing, right? Yeah, I got I got a year of Apple TV when I bought my my new phone. So I'm like, what can I watch? And uh, 
I'd seen the poster for Under Rocks floating around for a while now. You know, it's just uh, Rashida Jones and Bill Murray looking at the camera. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I'm just going to tell you, like, I'm, I'm going to give you more information that that poster does. And uh, and that will be it. Under Rocks, The Vanishing, and uh, whatever that, that Adele Racer and the is. Jailbird. That's easier to pronounce than her last name, I guess. You can get that along with all the other cool stuff that we, uh, that we have, including uh, an upcoming patron exclusive uh, episode requested by Ben from Filmbusters about the movie Desperate Measures with Michael Keaton and Andy Garcia. All that on our patron channel, which is at patreon.com slash contrarian prime. That's the contrarian supplements. You can go there, look at our tiers, see how much you want to contribute if you want to contribute and uh, just join the family. Absolutely. For all our current patrons, love y'all, hold y'all dear. Uh, for, we're taking applications, as I like to say. Yeah, just go on over there, throw us a buck or two. Uh, I mean, you can literally throw a buck and just see if you like what you get. Uh, continue on, throw some more money, do what you got to do. But we'll always be here with the uh, the timeline episodes for y'all. We appreciate y'all listening all the same. Our patron is just kind of where more of our lucid thoughts come out to play. So <laughs> with that in mind, Julio, uh, pain and gain. Again, like I said, we're back here in 2013. Can't stay away. Who's the pain and who's the gain here, Alex? I mean, this is the gain for Michael Bay, that's for sure. The pain is that 50%. Can you imagine being Michael Bay, stepping out of your box, putting in a genuine effort, and then you get the grade and it's just like a kind of a, a an unimpressive 50%? And it really like, is. Fuck it's... you, I'm going back to make more Transformers movies then. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what he did. Uh, <laughs> yep. 2014, Transformers, Age of Extinction. <laughs> and then he made something called 13 Hours and then Transformers, The Last Night. Yeah, it's that would be frustrating. Especially, say what you will about the movie, but this is clearly, you could tell by the work that's put into it that he had a, a passion for this. And... Uh, I guess as a segue into you going through the remainder of the quotes that you have for us, a quote of this movie that has always stuck with me was our friend Eddie Strait said to me, I'm not sure if I believe in destiny, but I'm pretty sure it was Michael Bay's destiny to make pain and gain. Uh, <laughs> and what he meant by that, if I understood when we talked about the movie, because I think Eddie, obviously not as much as me, but enjoyed it. It was basically a real life story that was so absurd that deserved an absurd treatment. Uh, in film that could have like action and stylization to it as only Michael Bay could do. And it, it really seems like the movie he made where all the parts really came together um, artistically, obviously Armageddon and the rock is awesome as well, but Armageddon, you know, the bad boys movies, the transformers movies, obviously this guy has more money than he would ever know possibly what to do with. But from a filmmaking perspective, it really seems like this was the one for better and for worse in some cases where, it was just like serendipitous. It was like everything was aligned. The Grimlap system of moons all came together for one night only type thing when he made <laughs> Pain and Gain. And that's kind of the quote I always think of when I think of this movie. Being that it's 50%, though, I mean, these fuckers are split dead down the middle. What were the other reviews you wrangled up for us? All right. A few more, more mixed quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website, starting with Nick Pinkerton from Side and Sound, who says, While pain and gain often frustrates, Bay's overwhelming cinematic sense is undeniable. 
I mean, he does have, you know, his own language in a way. Michael Bay, when he makes movies, they look and sound and feel like Michael Bay movies. Uh, Jason Bailey from Flavorwire says, maybe he's trying to do Goodfellas-style dark comedy. The copious voiceovers would certainly suggest it. But as charitably as possible, Bay is no Scorsese. I mean, we knew that. Was this up for debate? <laughs> Apparently. Uh, Jeremy Libbins from We Got Discovered says, Pain and Gain is Michael Bay's best film yet, fusing his high-octane and in-your-face directing style with pitch-black comedy that makes for the funniest film of 2013. Is it the funniest film of 2013, Alex? Do you remember all your other highlights? It's really fucking funny. Yeah, I didn't really have that many comedies in my listing that year. I but then dark. again, enough said. Enough said is funny, but there's a lot more to it than that. To answer your question, yeah, it's the, it's the funniest. Oh, wow. Okay, Mr. Libbins. Uh, <laughs> and finally, Max Kibbers from Film Comment Magazine says, rather than take its true crime caper inspiration seriously, it pumps off its real-life players as dumb action figures and has little respect for the victims involved either. Did you feel that? That is, that's the last quote, and I put it last because it's such a hot button, I guess. You know, I, I think it's always tricky when you adapt a true story into a movie. And then in a case like this, where real people got hurt and real people got killed, I don't know. I mean, do you feel like the movie is disrespectful to the victims of these three idiots? Uh, I think it brings in that interesting, you know, social conundrum that you and I have discussed uh, on here before with different movies that we've done of like, who's the real monster, that type <laughs> of thing. And part of it being able to tell this movie in, uh, <laughs> you said that now and I've just seen this, uh, review that called the movie grotesquely inappropriate. Um, <laughs> the victims, I think that goes to the whole idea of Daniel. He's not targeting good people. You know, he sees these people that he believes don't deserve these things because they're, you know, bad people. And I'm not God. I'm not a judge, a jury, or an executioner. So it's not up to me to judge these people. But I think that is part of the story. And that was, you know, behind his motivations in real life as well. Um, the Victor Kershaw character, that wasn't his real name. They had to change it for le legal reasons. You know, he was like arrested shortly after the trial for like some monetary crime. So he went to like prison also after like testifying against them. So, you know, he wasn't uh, necessarily a good dude. Also, he had like his issues and shit. And then um, as a porn fan, I can't really demonize the, the, the <laughs> porn people, but... But I don't think that it's uh, disrespectful to them. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's such tricky territory. If you don't know the people in real life, then it's easy for you to just take it at face value. I mean, I'm watching a movie. I'm not comparing mm -hmm. notes. Right. If I knew so, these people or they were like in my family, I'd probably have much different feelings. But exactly. Yeah. 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 That's what I was gonna say. Like you know, to me, I just watch it as a movie and I judge it as a movie and I think, well, they all look like assholes. They behave like assholes. I don't feel bad. They sort of got, especially when it comes to Tony Shalhoub character. You know, the other two actually, the 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 porn king and the. I mean, he he was kind of a dick, but his wife seemed pretty innocent as far as you know. She didn't do anything, and mm. uh, the fact that they die seems like. I mean, to call it an overreaction is is 
underselling it. But yeah, imagine if you were actually related to them or you knew them as friends and then you see them depicted in this movie. And I mean, I don't think that it paints a flattering picture of them, but I don't think it paints a flattering picture of anyone. I mean, I don't know. So the Victor Kershaw character was a person, but his name was Mark Schiller, I think. They... If I understood correctly in my research, his name had to be changed because he also went to prison. So there was like legal reasons why they couldn't use his real name or some bullshit like that. But Frank Griga and Christina Furton, like those were real people that were killed by them. And she was killed almost like out of the movie, like was shot with her horse tranquilizer three times and died. After the age of like 27, 28, Learning about and reading about real life murders really loses a lot of its luster. So uh, <laughs> I didn't really, I only would go so far when researching this. I remember when it came out, doing like extensive research on it and seeing, you know, all of what happened. But of course, that's what, eight years ago. So a lot of that's left my memory. My fictional horror movies can fulfill any of my, you know, violent needs these days i don't need to read too much about these but from what i do remember her death was out of all the events portrayed in the movie one of the closest to what happened but they were real people yes well then i i can definitely see that point of you know assuming that they had family or they had friends and then you see them and the, it's not like there's much to their characters yeah, I, I can I can see that criticism i don't know why i could be reading him completely wrong but i kind of feel like michael bay doesn't give a shit and that makes it worse. Oh, no. <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, it's it's tricky anytime that you're dealing with, with real people. I wonder how the real Daniel Lugo feels about this. I wonder if he watches this movie and he completely misreads it. And it he thinks that the movie is <laughs> to think of glorifying how like him. They get Showtime in prison or something. And he caught it, you know, <laughs> a year and a half after it came out. Hey, that's me. Shut up in there. And like the guard bangs on the... <laughs> All right, here we go. The real Victor Kershaw, real name Mark Schiller, was actually arrested and convicted for a false Medicare billing fraud scheme right as he was leaving the courthouse as the victim <laughs> witness on the day of the death sentences. Uh, on the day the death sentences were passed for his kidnappers, Kershaw, uh, Schiller, and Delgado, uh, one of the real-life gym members who is partially represented by the Dwayne Johnson character, had participated in a Medicare fraud scheme together before the events of his kidnapping. This scheme netted them over $14 million. During the testimony, Assistant State Attorney knew Schiller was under federal investigation during the three years of his kidnapping-slash-murder trial. However, she held off the feds and kept them quiet in order to extract as much evidence and testimony from Schiller as possible. The judge who ended up sentencing the Jim kidnappers and murderers to death was also the same judge who now had to sentence Schiller for his fraud scheme. Due to having sympathy and compassion for Schiller, uh, having experienced the kidnapping, along with the courage to relive and testify the ordeal, the judge actually provided his own favorable testimony about Schiller at the sentencing. The judge then gave him 46 months in federal prison, which was the minimum amount of prison time legally allowed. See, that's fucking fascinating as hell, but God, the movie would have to be like another hour long to include something like that. <laughs> Please no. This no. movie, it it's like, okay, so getting into the weeds here, it straddles that runtime. It goes, for me, because I like it so much and enjoy it, it rides the line very much so. That being said, having watched this movie in the past three months, when they get to the beginning, like you, like you call it out in Contrarian's Corner, 
when it gets there and then there's still, you know, 20 minutes of the movie left or whatnot, mm-hmm. you can feel it. Um, watching it for the purposes of this, it wasn't one of my traditional just like have it on in the background or sit down and kind of quote along with it, but trying to like be analytical about it. It's right on the line for me. And I get the impression that you weren't too far from being serious when you were criticizing the runtime of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I overdid it in Contrarian's Corner, but I I feel like it's not great. Like, the runtime is not great. I wish that they, they cut it down to under two hours, which seems almost petty because it's two hours and nine minutes, and some of that is credits. So it really, it's not that much, but I do feel it. It's just like you. And actually, I felt it earlier than that because I already seen it once, and so I knew that there was the whole thing with the with the porn king and his wife. Like I knew that that was still a thing that was in the future. And as the movie, it felt like it should be wrapping up. And I'm like, you know, because Ed, Ed Harris already entered the picture and he was kind of like closing in on on them. And suddenly the prospect of these guys going into another type of heist, I was like, man, that's just... Like I'll watch it because I was, you know, laughing, but it felt like... I felt the runtime there, and then, of course, when we caught up and there was still more. It's not that big of a deal. I, I think it would be a big of a deal if you were asking me to watch this movie on a regular basis, like, more often. <laughs> you know, and I'll tell you, nope. I've had enough pain and gain for <laughs> for this year. And I think that makes it also, like, a tougher sell to somebody who's not invested to begin with. You know, for me to tell anybody, hey, you should watch Pain and Gain. And then they look at the runtime, and they're like, I don't know about that. You know, yeah. it, which it, it just because the type of movie it is, because if it was just a, a Michael Bay action movie, like, I don't know how, how long The Rock is, but, you know, it's like if you told me that The Rock was two hours and nine minutes, I'd be like, that's fine. You don't feel it. <laughs> but this movie is just so uh, nasty and just it's it's it. Do you not find it funny? Oh, no, I find it hilarious. Okay. But, it, but it's still grimy. Like, I feel gross. But at what cost? <laughs> I probably, yeah, I mean, I think I find it as funny as you do. I, I was laughing a lot with contempt, but I was still laughing. Wahlberg is just perfect uh, playing the big jacked up idiot. And I mean, obviously the rocks in the same boat too. Anthony Mackie is very funny, it, it, but kind of in a different way from the other two. He's just like, to me, the laughs he gets in the movie are incidental, where as opposed to just being an idiot like the other two. He was the last one cast for it and had like, I think I read three weeks to get ready for it physically he put on 17 pounds of muscle and bulked up to 213 which he's kind of a wiry dude to begin with yeah he had three weeks to train to begin the filming so props to him uh Dwayne got up to 300 pounds i read and <laughs> god he was like he looked immobile and so he had to turn sideways to walk through doors probably in this it's ridiculous i was i was a little serious in Contreras corner like i, I think he's fine but I don't think it's his finest hour. Like the way that people oh. talk about this performance, you included, like it doesn't read that way to me. And I think that it's uh, kind of like a saying in corner. It's that that same thing that was happening with Meg Ryan, except that in in the cut, it helped me get into it. Like I was like, oh, this is really cool seeing Meg Ryan do something different. And in Pain and Gain, it just made me second guess a lot of what was happening. I'm like, am I laughing because The Rock is funny or am I laughing just because it's The Rock in a ridiculous situation? One is yeah, about his heard. performance. The other one is just about his persona being put at you know really good use in the movie. We are in heavy disagreement here. So like, you think I, he's 
he's funny all the time in this movie. Like you think that his delivery and everything is I mean, like I think that he's funny like on his own, but somehow when I try to integrate him with the rest of the movie, I'm like he feels like he's clowning around a little more than everybody else. But it, like he's coked up for half the movie. This is going to be uh we're not going to see eye to eye on this. I think he's great in this. I think to me as a fan of his uh coming from the wrestling world, this was the first like you know, I like Southland Tales, and I think he's good in that. I like the rundown and some of his action movies he's done and whatnot. This was the first time I was like, oh, Dwayne can act. Like, it's not just, <laughs> it's not just like Schwarzenegger thing, uh, Schwarzenegger syndrome, where he's just so charismatic and captivating as a human that we're going to go see him in all these dumb action movies. This, mm-hmm. this guy, this, as Charlie Murphy would say, this cat can ball. I watched this and I was like, holy shit, because he's funny. His like when he starts going, when he's just unraveling towards the end, his delivery in the hotel where he is <laughs> threatening that guy. He's like, oh, yeah, uh, it was here the first time I smashed a man's head in with a baseball bat. Uh, that was aluminum. I've switched to wood. So you should get out here. Like he's just talking to that guy and he's all fucked up and, you know, clearly just going crazy. It's yeah, it was the first time, you know, I'm still getting towards that with Cena. I haven't had that yet <laughs> with Cena of being like, oh, OK, this is, you know, and I'll follow Cena to the end of the earth. But <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen him in something yet where I've where I've believed he can hang in a major motion picture with A-list celebrities, A-list actors, excuse me. And this was that for The Rock. You know, Mark Wahlberg doesn't have the most range. Anthony Mackie's a really good actor. But for what this movie was, when I saw it for the first time with The Rock in it, this is when I became a believer that he really was capable of greatness. It's um, funny that you bring up that that specific scene because I remember that being one of those line readings that just rang false. And it could be just that the the depiction of him or his depiction of somebody that's fucked up just doesn't jibe with what I have in my mind when you know when i think of somebody that's just coked out of his mind well as we've discussed in the seven years we've been doing this that's one of the trickiest things to pull off in acting is acting inebriated and being believable while doing uh-huh. it and so it should be no surprise there's been stuff we've watched where one of us thought they did a good job of it and the other one didn't so it's yeah, it's, I, a, it's a difficult task yeah and i i i I believe I am in the minority here because I think that if this is just a revered performance overall. Would you say it's his best, in your opinion? Probably. Um, I'm trying to think of anything else. I've watched Southland Tales in the last six months, so that's pretty fresh in my head. That's that's a little bit different, though, because that was... Uh, we might have even talked about it in an after-hours segment. That's before he really did anything big, and so he just was insane in that movie (laughs) just going to like a different level that we will never see from him again because now he's reached a certain level of celebrity um so going down his filmography here from the perspective of being me thinking he was doing a really good job as an actor yes i think he's fucking hilarious in the other guys and get smart as well i'm a big fan of his performances in both of those but this is like an all-encompassing performance uh you know you can't give him i mean you can obviously give him credit that dude hasn't 
the, the Dwayne Johnson probably hasn't had a, a bag of Skittles since like 1999. <laughs> oh, and <God>. so <laughs> But because he comes from the physical background that he does, people aren't going to give him immediate credit for, like, the physical transformation, much like, you know, like people would talk about Mark Wahlberg in this. He's yoked to the gills. He got, a, like, to 220 or 230 or something. And I kind of feel bad for him because he's jacked as fuck, but then The Rock shows up and it's just like, well, there he is. But my point is, the from a physical preparation perspective, funny convincing with his lines yeah this would be to me the rock's best performance i remember when it came out a couple of reviews i read obviously more like extremist dramatic shit some people were saying like it should have been a supporting actor awards performance like it should have been recognized as such uh i don't i don't remember that was the year jared leto dominated everything with dallas mm -hmm. buyers club so for what he did playing uh, a transgender woman with AIDS. Uh, I don't think The Rock with a Coke problem is really going to be able to hold up to that. <laughs> <laughs> so in hindsight, I don't think we really missed anything. At the same time, yes, I would agree that you're in the minority because I've uh, people I've talked to that don't care for this movie, it's that thing of, well, you know, the movie sucks, but The Rock's still really good in it. And... Uh, he steals the show in a movie that is designed to overwhelm you with everything from music to the individual performances. Like I said, like Peter Stormare and um, uh, Hankin and, you know, just these random side characters that have like one or two scenes max. They're all really weird and creepy for really no explicable reason. So it's this movie that everything in it is designed to steal your attention, except Rob Corddry for some reason. You know, the one most over-the-top, verbose comedic actor that they have in it, they make him very reserved. So for The Rock to stand out in a movie where everything stands out, I think that speaks to his performance in this. I can see that. I, I still, I'm skeptical that everybody that loves this performance loves the performance i think that there has to be a percentage that just loves the fact that it's the rock doing that performance yeah. i feel i'm qualified to speak on the rock i i'm just going to repeat the same point i, I made it, it was the first time i saw him separate himself from just being the rock and becoming like an actor would you um, say this was his london because from here on it was just <laughs> action movies <laughs> This was everybody's London, man. Uh, <laughs> and you have to know that going in. That's probably why uh, fucking Michael Bay waited to make it. You have to know going in, we're making this movie that's like a really dark comedy about these <laughs> real killings and kidnappings that happened. Even Ed Harris. I think that's why Ed Harris just played Ed Harris in this. Because he was just like, man, y'all are making a crazy movie. I'm just going to be back here being me, okay? Uh, <laughs> to me, by the way, just so, so we can fully establish where I stand with this movie, when it comes to this movie, I think Ed Harris is the... To me, Ed Harris steals the show, not The Rock. My, my so MVP good. is Ed Harris. Ed Harris is great. It's effortless. you know. And we talked about... I kind of had umbrage with him in uh, Snowpiercer. I mm -hmm. remember kind of just talking about at that point in the movie. It, it didn't work, but it was no fault of his own. And he, effortless is the word I used to describe it. Him and Tony Shalhoub together are great. You know, the Shalhoubs, <laughs> like you said in the first half, he, he, he the character almost becomes self-parody by the end. But just some of the back and forth with Ed Harris and him and... 
Ed Harris's just demeanor in this and the it's you know we talk about these scenes of very subtle range that are displayed the scene where he's at the gym for the first time with Mark Wahlberg the, the master class of acting he puts on in that scene is just <laughs> ridiculous where he's obviously in pain but he's trying to keep up like this facade that he's like hanging in there and then he's also trying to like rack his brain about you know the facts of the case and everything and then when they're talking about like the lawnmower and he has that pause and remembers mm-hmm. it and specifically when they're doing the stretching and he's like yeah my buddy told me to come here victor yep. kershaw and yeah it's i i definitely will give you that if the if i wasn't so much on the rock's dick about this movie i would definitely agree <laughs> that ed harris is tremendous and i feel like his role the way he is portrayed in the movie and the fact that they cast Ed Harris for it was definitely by design because this movie is just nonstop chaos and every scene he's a part of until the end, the climax, he just brings this overwhelming calm to it because Mm -hmm. he's, he's fucking Ed Harris. And again, I really did like the actress who played his wife, Emily Rutherford. Uh, The glaring age difference is a bit (laughs) funny, uh, but once you get over that, it's, I thought, um, the limited lines they did give her were very good. Yeah, she has that moment where she shows, it felt like honest compassion towards Tony Shalhoub, which surprised me because that guy's such a piece of shit that the movie knows it. And there's just that moment at the dinner table when mm-hmm. you know she's talking about the dignity. And I think he says something like, I still have a boat or I used to have a boat. And then she just says, uh, yes, you did or yes, you do. And it was just so sweet out of nowhere. There's mm-hmm. There's no sweetness whatsoever in this movie. And then that moment... I think that's also why I like Ed Harris so much, this character of the wife by extension also, because they actually feel like they're not dumb. Like They're the only characters in here that are not part of this just really uh, disgusting culture <laughs> you know, yeah. so that everybody else seems to be part of. And so when they come in, it's just a breath of fresh air. And suddenly you have hope that somebody's going to make sense of all the idiocy that's been going on and i'm not saying this as in shitting on the movie like i think the movie is great but you need that that extra element where Ed harris shows up and you think that there's the promise of well somebody's gonna wrangle all these things together and put an end to this and eventually he does i think that also that has to do with why i like the character as well i have that bias towards you know a character that i find more sympathetic than any of the idiots that are part of the of the story. I, I like making fun of them. I like laughing at them and just rolling my eyes at how stupid they are and how dumb their beliefs are. But but I find it more satisfying when I get a character that comes in and acknowledges how stupid everything is and then tries to put an end to it. I would agree with what you, you're saying. And I think it also it goes back to what I was saying about wrangling the things that Michael Bay is good at and bringing them all to a head. Instead of having some sappy, ridiculous love story on the side here, basically what he does to bring the audiences, to bring them, make them things level and like calm and, you know, bring a sense of comfort that, you know, there is a good person or there is something good that can come of this, you know, like the fucking love story in Armageddon, the love story in Pearl Harbor, even was it Megan Fox and Shia LaBeouf, like the whole idea of all that shit. He doesn't really have that in this movie. And in my opinion, he's not very good at that. It's just it's so Hollywood when he does that in movies, these love stories. And it obviously it works for the general public is he's one of the you know from a monetary standpoint, most successful directors of all time. But 
since that's not in this, he still is able to funnel that idea of doing something that puts the audience at rest or tells the audience something good can happen. And, you know, there's going to be this byline of uh, virtue and, you know, hope. And that's in the form of Ed Harris here. So this idea of something that Michael Bay does in his movies, he kind of gives it a spin on top of that has one of the better actors in the history of American film. So it all kind of comes together for that. Now, back on the other side of the equation, as I think Julio and I have both made it clear, Ed Harris is definitely one of, in my opinion, and the highlight of this movie uh, for Julio. The the loud, verbose nature of this is perfect. It's that mid-90s bright colors were still all the rage. You know, the bright colored cars. It wasn't just black, you know, Ferraris. It wasn't where cars were just black and red. We still had like purple Plymouth Prowlers is one of these in this movie. And like the clothes they wear are still close enough to the 80s where Michael Bay can just go nuts with the things that he loves to do, which is, you know, (laughs) colorful and mixing in, you know, different types of music that doesn't seem tonally appropriate. So it's all these things that he loves to do mixed with the right story. And then you have like the right cloak of actors. I can't remember. I want to say someone else was supposed to have the Anthony Mackie role, uh, which would make sense if you only had three weeks to prepare for it. So Tony Danza. (laughs) I like it here. The weights are new. So you have all these parts that come together very well. I don't want it to see like I think this is a flawless movie because there are things in here that are out of the hands of many of the players. One of them is Rebel Wilson. And like I said in Contrarian's Corner, there's nothing more 2013 than Rebel Wilson just riffing, which should have been an interesting scene where Adrian shows up and you know admits his impotence due to his steroid use, becomes just the Rebel Wilson hour. And yep. uh, basically all of their scenes moving forward are just Rebel Wilson shit. I do like that moment of acting that I called out in the first mm-hmm. half, but yep. it's it's uh, canceled out by letting her come back and do her whole, you know, fucking um, what's the acapella movie that she got famous for? Pitch Perfect. Yeah, that, that whole shtick just coming in and <laughs> I'm Rebel Wilson. <laughs> there's there's two Female characters, two actual characters in the movie. Uh, if you don't count Ed Harris's wife, who's just like a tiny, tiny part, and then the porn king's wife, who's also a small part, but, you know, kind of a big part of the plot because she dies, right? But really, yeah. if you were to list, like, in as far as importance or whatever in, in, in the story, it, it's Rebel Wilson and the, the Russian immigrant. They both get their own voiceover, and they get a whole bunch of scenes in that... I was conflicted. Not, I mean, not super conflicted. I was I was having a good time watching the movie. But as I was writing notes, especially because I was going to be on the offensive, I was like, this is a really easy criticism. And and I think a valid one as far as... Uh, I mean, this entire movie is Michael Bay, of course. There's no surprises in a way in the sense that everything that happens, you're like, well, yeah, this seems like a Michael Bay movie. This feels like a Michael Bay movie. And the treatment of female characters here also feels like a Michael Bay thing in a bad way. Because I think that you could criticize him throughout his filmography for just using women mostly as props. And, uh, you know, Robert Wilson is here for, I guess, sort of like comedy relief, but also because the Anthony Mackie 
character needs to have a wife that eventually gets him in trouble. And then the the Russian girl, I mean, I don't know how much of it has to do with the, you know, with the true story, but basically mm-hmm. they're, they're nothing characters. And as dumb and uh, even somewhat one-dimensional as the main guys are, they still get a lot more to do than any of the female characters. You know, again, e- excepting uh, Ed Harris's wife, who is almost like that that bit is so good that it almost feels like a fluke. Like that's not like how the hell did that get into a Michael Bay movie? Now, mm-hmm. am I misrepresenting, like misjudging Michael Bay as a filmmaker? Like, am I not giving him enough credit? Because I understand you can make the case that this is all just part of the world that this movie takes place in. And like in this world, that's how women are viewed and that's how women are treated. Therefore, a movie about this world will treat women that way. But mm-hmm. in the context of Michael Bay's filmography, you're like, yes, but it's also how Michael Bay treats his female characters as a through line. So in this, which might be considered his best movie, his most serious movie, shouldn't we expect more of him in that aspect? I don't know. How do you feel about that? To quote that immortal uh, mob from The Simpsons, don't push your luck. Don't push your luck. <laughs> you can only ask for so much. It's still Michael Bay at the end of the day. And again, I'm not trying to say the dude doesn't know what he's doing. Those Transformers movies could fund most countries. Uh, <laughs> I think for the story being told here, I'm not sure how much more could have been accomplished by stronger, or like a more dominant female character in it because... In the end, the women are smarter, which is how that's true in real life. And (laughs) both of them figure out the situation and use it not to be vindictive, but to get back at these men that wrong them Uh, and fucking help get them sentenced to death. So (laughs) the thing is, there are gratuitous shots of uh, mail order Scarlett Johansson. What's her name? Serena. Uh, Serena. So... There are some gratuitous shots of her and her body that definitely play into the theme of excess of the film that aren't necessary. You know, the shot of the rock doing coke off her ass is awesome for a multitude of reasons, but to the, <laughs> to the point you're trying to make, I agree that there's there's not enough balance of women as objects versus women as intelligent beings for the majority of the movie until like i said in the end where it's just like yeah we're smarter than you so we're gonna make sure that you get punished for the crimes that you did with all that being said i i'm trying not to be too defensive because i do realize that's a flaw of the movie but it just if michael bay was here he i almost would guarantee you say well that's just not the movie i was trying to make yeah so but like you said then you have the calming presence of emily rutherford who does have this fl- this character that somehow kind of just snuck into the movie. And I, I don't know if they shot her scenes when Michael Bay had his proxy there or whatnot, but she <laughs> she does a great job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh-huh. it, yeah, you, you make an interesting point. Uh, while it's not practical, it's clearly the transitions are CG. I still really love that scene of the revolving camera between Daniel meeting with uh, Griga. Oh, yeah. And then them dancing in the front and the rock just doing all those push-ups. I'm going for 80. It's uh <laughs> grotesque again. Uh so uh making an addendum, amending, uh-huh, correcting something that I said in the first portion. 
Uh, Adrian Dorball is no longer on death row. Uh, yeah. Daniel Lugo remains on death row and has made multiple unsuccessful appeals at his sentence. Uh, because of the changes to the capital punishment laws, Dorball had his death sentence overturned in 2017. Uh, he may still come before a jury if Miami prosecutors seek the death penalty again. So, <laughs> I don't know. He watched this movie and he's like, beat the system. He watches it now, you know, when it says sentence to death at the end. <laughs> I won. Um, yeah, there were three, four other guys. There was way more than just three dudes in this. And the Rock's character, Paul Doyle, was a composite of several real-life individuals of different nationalities who were not depicted in the film, such as Carl Weeks, uh, George Delgado, and Stevenson Pierre, which I guess these were dudes from the Sun Gym. So I don't know whose picture they showed at the end there when they tried, <laughs> it was showing like the real-life pictures of people. But yeah, the, the Rock character is a composite. All right, so Julio... You know, we've covered most of this. Just kind of wrapping up here. Mark Wahlberg, he's come to the Contrarians universe multiple times. He's definitely Much entrenched in con- recently. Contra- Contrarians canon. Yeah, we had him in The Happening. You know, like The Departed, Mark Wahlberg is, he's obviously talented. That's why he's is where he is. But for people like you and me and the kind of things sometimes we go to movies to see, a guy like him needs the right character, the right direction. So immediately Mark Wahlberg, you know, you can name 10 movies that are just, you know, Mark Wahlberg movies, but then you got Boogie Nights, you got The Departed. And then for me, you got Pain and Gain Um, because I think the character suits him perfectly. And also he went for it completely. He had from the perspective of a, a member of the audience watching this on, you know, watching this on film, he does not seem to have any ego about making himself look like an idiot, just a big jacked up moron. And that pays <laughs> off wonderfully. I'm not saying he's an idiot in real life, but that's a stereotype that a lot of people have of him. Uh, so for him to embrace it and do something like this, a huge thing and that's that I find funny is comedic to me. You know, I always talk about like the really obscure things that I find funny. One of them is really good actors acting like they don't know how to act. Another thing is people playing characters that are so dumb, but doing it so straight faced and thinking they're right. And this is one of the best like portrayals of that. I've, I've ever seen his voiceovers. He's so stupid. And like the things he says throughout the movie are clearly just, they're said in a way that they just fly over your head. If you're not paying close enough attention to what he's saying, cause you know, he kind of, he delivers them like, like you would dramatic lines in like a play or something, but he just says these really just dumb things. It really is a movie that I've I definitely did not appreciate it enough on one viewing, and it some in some cases for some of the things I find funny about this, it takes a few different viewings. Like that whole line I told you about of why are you dressed for surgery in our hospital? Well, I like to be prepared for anything. <laughs> I don't know. How do you feel about Mark Wahlberg in this? He's obviously the centerpiece, so I figured we'd close on him. I like him. Okay, I I've never seen him be as effective in anything as his supporting role in The Departed. Did I think that Scorsese and that screenplay and everything just found a way to channel the essence of Mark Wahlberg in the perfect way? Like he's such an asshole in that movie, but yeah. he's but he's funny and you kind of rooting for him. Like you know he has a, some really good lines. I mean, talk about like lines that we quote all the time. Like uh, 
I'm the guy that's doing his job. You must be the other guy. I mean, that is just an all-time classic. And in the way that Wolverine delivers it in The Departed, it's just great. So so to me, that is like top-tier maybe, Wolverine. Maybe not. Yep. Maybe, maybe go fuck, fuck yourself. Maybe go fuck yourself. <laughs> To me, so so that's that's the bar for me. That's the, the top of the pyramid when it comes to Mark Wahlberg performances. And from there, there's like a whole lot of stuff that doesn't really hit me one way or the other. And then there's the horrible stuff like the happening at the very bottom. Having established those parameters, it, yeah, definitely pain and gain is closer to the departed in the way that it channels that Mark Wahlberg energy. I don't find him captivating as a as a protagonist, as somebody to that I would follow. This movie pulls the trick of like, yeah, he's an idiot and he's bland in his idiocy, but he's surrounded by so much going on and, and he finds himself caught up in this out of this world, you know, heist that I'm okay. I'm watching it because there's just so much going on that that it's so good. If he didn't have Anthony Mackie and The Rock, you know, flanking him, I would have a much harder time getting through this movie if it was just him. Like, I don't think that he could carry it on his own with the way that the character is written and the way that he portrays him. Like, I just, I I have my tolerance for, like, stupidity on screen. It's just, <laughs> and I know he's acting. I'm not calling Mark Wahlberg the actor. It's stupid. I'm just saying the character that he plays. But the, but that Wahlberg energy, I mean, you know, the the entitlement that he can bring to to some of his characters and just the, the physicality and the, the kind of, like, deer in headlights look that doesn't work at all in the happening it, it works here you know like yeah. every time that something goes wrong in one of the plans goes awry here in, in pain and gain and you have that shot of him going like well i don't know what to do now like that's great that's that's great mark Wahlberg usage but i'm not crazy about it in the sense of like i want more of this <laughs> you know like it worked here and it worked because of all the circumstances surrounding it but that's it he's no ed harris <laughs> I just realized I didn't even cover my typical stats, but this was released on April 26th of 2013 with a budget of $26 million for a box office return of $86 million. So it's not in line with what the other things Michael Bay did from a financial <laughs> perspective. Uh, but that, again, it makes sense. It, yeah, it didn't make $500 million like goddamn Pearl Harbor did. But hey, man, like we've said, or I've said, I don't know how you feel about it, props to Michael Bay for, you know, not necessarily being a, a Michael Haneke type director, but for finding a period in his career where he could make something that he wanted to and not really give a shit about what the fallout of that was. And part of that is he had billions of dollars of padding that came to him from what he had done up until that point. So in the end, Julio, Michael Bay as a director, do you have any just overall general thoughts about him? He's someone we joke about so much. And, you know, to a point of almost just cliche, we, oh, yeah, it's like a Michael Bay movie is something people joke about because he is of the 21st century and the, uh, the late 90s, but specifically the 21st century, especially with uh, Transformers and whatnot, is the big, loud director mm -hmm. uh, that makes these huge blockbusters and clearly doesn't really care what critics think about him. <laughs> it was at Armageddon. There was something, one of them, he sent a letter to Peter Travers, uh, who like shredded the movie. And he's like, do you know something about it that I don't? Because it made da 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 amount of money. And you know, he, <laughs> he clearly just wants to make big, fun, loud movies for, you know, the general audience. And so something like this is definitely an interesting blip on his filmography. But just wrapping it up here, Julio, your thoughts on Michael Bay overall. 
so my first instinct was to say that Pain and Gain is probably the most, like the closest that Michael Bay's interest and mine will will get. Like you know, that's the intersection. But that's not fair because that that actually makes it sound like I don't enjoy any of his other movies, and that's not true. Like I think The Rock is great. Uh, I, think I like the first Transformers. I don't remember enough about the first Transformers. I I know that it wasn't. I I didn't care to watch any of the other ones. I Same. I don't like the way the robots look. I can't tell what's going on there. <laughs> uh, I should probably clarify. I like the novelty of the first one. I thought it was a lot of fun and a, a fun experience going to see in the movie theater. But yeah, I never saw any of the other ones. I think that the the bigger and the louder he's gotten, the less I'm interested in watching his movies. Because, yeah, I watched The Rock, I watched Armageddon. I haven't even watched the Bad Boys movies. Pain and Gain is is interesting. And I think I think it would be interesting even if Michael Bay wasn't attached to it. But the fact that he's attached to it, that, that he's the man behind it, gave it extra value. And yeah. uh, I wish that we saw more of that kind of stuff. I mean, he certainly, I, I think he has the power in Hollywood to to make something like that happen if he wanted to just do something a little more... It doesn't even have to be serious, but, you know, something with a little more substance. I don't know that it's going to happen. I mean, it's if you just go, you know, you can just judge him by his filmography and the things that he's done. And, it, yeah, it doesn't seem like he's interested in doing something like this again. I mean, be that as it may, I still like it. And I guess it shows that even even a director that you don't have much in common with can surprise you with a one-off. <laughs> It would be a real tragedy if making this kind of movie is really what Michael Bay would like to be doing. But somehow he's found himself caught in this web of blockbusters that it's like, well, that's I have a lifestyle to support now. And and I can support them making Transformers movies, but not making more pain and gain type of stuff. Kind of get the feeling that he he has more control over his destiny than than that, though. So I don't know. Uh, I would yeah, hope so. I, not to minimize like, what he's good at, like or what he does on a regular basis. I mean, I think his movies generally look good in that Michael Bay way. He has a style, and that's something that so many filmmakers don't have. He has a very distinctive style. You know you're watching something directed by Michael Bay. It's just that sometimes I don't connect, or many times I just don't connect to what's going on beyond the style in his movies. But yeah, he's still, I mean, really talented. It's an interesting tale, and it, to your point, definitely adds to the interesting legacy of Pain and Gain, the divisive, clearly fascinating legacy of this. So moving into our, our scores, Julio, yeah, you know, I came in here straddling between a B plus and an A minus, and I just, ugh, I, I think I'm trying to convince myself into lowering my score just to <laughs> to make some <laughs> listeners happy, because I know specifically I, Ryan and Bartek don't care for pain and gain. Uh, but I got to stick with my, you know, uh, what's the line that Rutherford has? Every man needs to fight for his dignity and I will continue <laughs> to fight for my love of pain and gain. I'm going to go with an A minus for this. It's pretty high praise. I, for all my, my issues and the fact that I don't buy into the rocks performance as much as everybody else, I'm gonna I'm gonna land on four stars, and you know what? I it is four stars partly because of the Michael Bay factor because it is just mm-hmm. it adds that extra mystique that Michael Bay is behind it, and I I wouldn't have expected that. I mean, yes, I would have after watching the movie. You know, the way it's shot, I'm like, yeah, this looks and feels like a Michael Bay movie. But you know, it's just it's just cool to see somebody doing something different and it working out 
for the most part. This is not Shyamalan doing After Earth. This is this is a lot more successful than that. And I had a good time watching this movie. Like I said, it's not about good people and it's not about wholesome values. It's about the complete opposite. But I think it walks the line the proper way where it's just it's on the right side of of the issues it's just it's making fun of them and it's not it's not glorifying them they glorify themselves in their heads but the movie doesn't i i can see can how that might not be enough for some audiences and that's perfectly fine but i i'm okay with it i i kept laughing so to me that's that was the main thing so yeah four stars all right well it was a long journey here but we finally introduced pain and gain and contrarians canon provided a great episode uh julio what's next well up next uh switching gears once again (laughs) we're gonna go with uh it's our bonus episode for the month of september and it's been picked by patron ben from film busters like i said he picked the desperate measures for the exclusive patron feed but for the main feed that's available to everyone he's picked the master a movie that we've talked about so many times on this show, like we've referenced it, but we've never had a deep dive on it while recording, and we certainly haven't given it the contrarian treatment. If you're a long-time listener, you know both Alex and I love it, and so it will be interesting to try to be negative about it for the first half of the show. Looking forward to discussing it, at least the second half of that podcast. Yeah, I think it's going to be, the first part's going to be a challenge. <laughs> Well, the master's on deck. That was pain and gain. We're not going too far back in the past. We're just going to 2012 from 2013. So taking it easy on y'all. We're not making any huge leaps here. All right. So that's going to bring us along to perennial plugs. We start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with last stand. Take us home with summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hansworth Geeser is the man behind our logo, all the graphics on our webpage, on our Patreon page, on our upcoming merch. He's a genius. He does it all. And one of his podcasts, Nación Combi, just reached recently the, the big milestone of 300 episodes. Alex, that is insanity. Uh, but of course, yeah, they, they release an episode every week. So, of course, it racks up the, the numbers really quickly. But still, they've been doing it for a long time. And he's going to keep doing it. That's the podcast that he has about Peruvian current affairs. He also has a podcast called Marginal that's about the economy. And then he has a whole bunch of books that he's written. You can check out all his work uh, on his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Or you can reach him on Twitter at mildemonios or email him mildemonios at hotmail.com in case you want logos or comics or want to tell him about his books. Uh, his most recent one is called Historia del Peru, Historia with a Z. It's a fake uh, Peruvian history textbook uh, with zombie stories in it. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, Hans, for all your support. And thank you to Ms. Zoe Perez, who helps out with our social media game. If you haven't already, facebook.com slash contrarian prime. You can head on over there and give us a like or a follow. I can't remember what they call them anymore. Uh, but we have some videos that are exclusive to our Facebook page. Zoe helps put those together. And then, of course, our Instagram. If you have Instagram, you can follow us at Contrarian Prime on there as well. Uh, Zoe provides some audio clips, interactive graphics. Just does not go unappreciated. Thank you, Zoe, for helping out with our social media game. So with all that out of the way, that's going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we'll catch you next time.